Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. But I didn't, I don't recall police coming up, right? Uh, I remember I was, the first time I ever saw the inside of a jail, I was about 11 or 12. My brother and I was walking down from uh, playing ball with a friend of ours down by the levee. And uh, it was these other two boys who was with us who were sons of a poker fisherman. A poker, and a poker fish is, a poker fishermen are like migrant uh, Farm workers you see out here, they follow the poker fish. They come from the East Coast all the way down into the Caribbean or the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, so they had been there like about a week, and they were walking with us, and this girl was coming the same way. So, you know, it's customary down in segregated south. You cross the street, so you won't pass on the same side. So when she got parallel to us, he, one of the uh, poker, fishes, poker fishermen's son, sons uh, hollered her name. Hey, Linda, you know. And uh, this was, uh, you don't do this down there. So we, man, we don't do this down here, you know. And we kept on walking. About an hour later, the first time I ever remember the police came to uh, our house and put me and my brother in jail for speaking to a white woman. That's the first time I ever saw the inside of a jail. I think it was about 11 or 12. A year after, my brother and I and about, let's see, me, about four of us, maybe five, had went trick-or-treating. And, you know, I come from a real kind of close family structure, they wouldn't let you venture out too far. So the place we went trick-or-treating was okay, was clear about our people and stuff. When we got near the tracks coming back, two trucks stopped and uh, it was a clan. They jumped out and they and everybody started running. And so we got to running and uh, uh, it, my, they got my brother. And I, I didn't realize it because I thought he was in the front of me. And uh, it was beating him pretty bad. My, I started coming back when I realized they had gotten my brother. Before I could get back, my older brother, uh, one of my older brothers was there, my sister, my daddy, my mama, all of the people out the alley from, I mean, it looked like it about, shoot, about 10, 15 seconds, it was, you know, stop what they were doing. It was, it was about 7 at night, right? And um, they back, backed up right quick, and I grabbed my brother, and um, it was a very emotional thing. Then we found out later that uh, it was someone had taken their children's uh, trick-or-treat candy way on the other side of the swamps. So they just came to get, you know, like they say, any nigga will do. But the, the, the dignity, the feeling you would feel when s things like that happen is very similar to what happened after the shootout in Los Angeles years later. How the community would respond, the feeling you would get after you done backed these dogs down, you see? They shouldn't have been there, and the people stood up, and they defeated them. We get, you know. So uh, 
that sense of uh, nationalism, that sense of protection that people banded together against these evil forces uh, worn out. Geronimo graduated from high school in 1965 and enlisted in the Army. He served three years in Vietnam, receiving many commendations. While in Vietnam, he was sprayed with the chemical defoliant Agent Orange. He continues to experience chronic sinus inflammation from this exposure. The prison refuses to treat this condition. It's 1968. I'm getting out of the service. I was uh, riding down the streets. The police, black and white uh, squad cars, they had, it was about five or six of them, lights flashing. And as I, I came closer, I noticed this helicopter, like it come out of nowhere, it seemed like, and it had this big bull light, we just call them bull lights. <clears throat> and that uh, very familiar helicopter, it just left, jumping out of them in Vietnam, you know. And it's right there, and I'm driving down the streets. And as I got closer, I was able to see they had these black people lying down on their face. I mean, you know, on their stomach. And uh, it was hard, it was hard, hard pill to swallow. And then I began to draw what I was about to say the most important thing, the parallels. I go through Watts, I go through Chicago, I go through the, <clears throat> Harlem, uh, and I see that the people in the, what's called the ghetto, uh, the black communities or the colonies or whatever you want to call it, were treated almost exactly the way we just got through treating Viet Cong or Vietnamese people in Vietnam. So I began to draw parallels that the police departments in these various situations in these cities were actually the same thing we were in Vietnam, occupying forces. They didn't live in the community. They came from another area. They didn't know the inhabitants of that community. <clears throat> so, um, and they were exploiting, they were imprisoning, killing, a lot of killing, just blacks at random, and it's still happening today. So it had a very strong effect that I had to stand up. I felt as though it was incumbent upon me to stand up and strike out against these things, to stand and to resist these things. And that was one of the main motivations that uh, propelled me into the movement back then, coming from Vietnam. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, March 11, 2021. So I have been told this is our second book study session on Jack Olson's Last Man Standing, The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Pratt. Uh, we are picking up, we're kind of midway through uh, section three, we are very early chapter three. We're very early, uh, in the text. We really have not got very far into, uh, how Geronimo Pratt ended up in the black Panther party. In fact, last week we ended with him explaining, uh, just after the assassination of Dr. King, uh, and him hearing Bobby seal for the first time explaining about the black Panthers. And he said he didn't know anything about them. Anyway, uh, the audio segment that we just heard, that was, the grandsister, Geronimo Pratt. I thought it was so important. They talked about the chemical agent, Agent Orange, uh, that was uh, that Mr. Pratt was exposed to. I feel like it should be a better way of saying it. But I mean, wow, talk about uh, medical apartheid on a global scale uh, to just 
make up all kinds of toxins and pollutants to dump on non-white people. I think the non-white people in Vietnam uh, are still dealing with the after effects of Agent Orange, DDT, uh, as they call it. And then they want to come around today and talk about anti-Asian violence. The originators of anti-Asian violence, racist man, racist woman, usual suspects, same folks keeping it up today. Anyway, uh, I thought it was so important. He uh, talked about some of the incidents that we heard uh, in the book last week growing up and and being terrorized by the Klan. His brother uh, left with epileptic seizures, uh, as well as the incident with Linda, the white woman. He talked about that being the first time that he ended up uh, being in greater confinement. Uh, Before we get to more details, again, the timing, I think, is, is amazing. Us reading this book right now, there's so much attention on uh, the Black Panther uh, new film that came out. It's not a documentary on Fred Hampton. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, I'm not a fan of that project, but Fred Hampton will be discussed in the book in the section we're reading this week, in fact. Uh, In addition, I just, you know, the authors who write these texts, uh, Mr. Jack Olson is deceased, uh, but he has a Washington State connection. He's neighbors with Gus T., Uh, But then Mr. Olson, he wrote many, many books about racism, white supremacy. He also wrote a book about uh, a rapist here in Seattle and wrongful wrongful conviction. And that's pretty interesting too, Seattle history. Uh, But he wrote one of uh, Sports Illustrated says he wrote one of the definitive authorized, no less, biographies on Muhammad Ali, Black is Best, the riddle of Cassius Clay. Now this was written some time ago, so it might be interesting to just go back for perspective sake, but it is available. You can get it online. Uh, not too expensive, not one of those $5,000 texts. Uh, in addition to this biography on Muhammad Ali, Jack Olson, who is a white man, suspected racist. He also wrote for sports illustrated a number of articles during the year 1968, which is about the time where we are in this text. We just heard uh, last week about the assassination of Dr. King and then the response from Bobby Seale. Uh, Jack Olson wrote a series of reports in Sports Illustrated about sports and racism. And I posted one of them. He's talking about the experience of black college athletes who at that time, one of them would have been Orenthal James Simpson. Anyway, he's talking about their experience. It is, wow, it is fascinating. Uh, some of these are lengthier reports at a time when there was no internet, so people had more time to read long feature reports, might have even looked forward to such writing. Uh, it is, wow, it will hold your interest. It talks about uh, some of the black athletes uh, at major college institutions and them getting in trouble for dating white women and even some of the white women being punished uh, and getting bad grades in their classes from their professors uh, if they were known to cavort with Negra athletes. Jack O's, I posted uh, some of the writing uh, online. Anywho, if you have been a faithful, attentive follower of the Cows Book Club, Ooh, we lots of familiar references. Even some of the cows classics will be referenced in the section of the reading for this week. Should be a hoot. We will get started. Jack Olson suspected racist 
Last Man Standing, The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Jijaga Pratt. Context of White Supremacy, this is audio segment one. When he was rotated back to Fort Bragg for the second time, he was contacted by Mr. Elmo and the other elders. They made it very clear what I needed to do. Everybody was expecting a race war. They told me my people needed me at home. Two months later, he was in Morgan City with an honorable discharge. So were most of the homies who'd ridden the blue dog to the recruiting office in New Orleans. Tony DeClure came back. Frank Francis, Larry Mays, and Jesse Wayne Bradford made it. Some of my other friends were shot up pretty bad. Geronimo had served one month less than three years, mostly in combat. His big brother Jackie exulted. We prayed him out. An ad appeared in Abundant Living magazine. I would like to express my thanks to God the Almighty Father and the Blessed Virgin Mary and all the saints to whom I prayed for the safe return of my son from Vietnam. Please publish my everlasting gratitude, Eunice Petty Pratt. Geronimo stayed home and across the tracks through the summer of 1968, consulting with the elders and adding some touches to the cinder block cottage he and Timothy had built for their parents. The epileptic older brother was still attending Southern University in Baton Rouge and he craved Geronimo's company. I'd always loved my little brother, Tim wrote later, and seeing him alive after Vietnam filled me with a love that I did not think I could possibly ever have for any human being other than Mama. I begged him to enroll at Southern but a weird thing happened before he decided. As he and I were driving in his car, we passed a fire station where white folks were having a barbecue. When they saw us, they began to call us all sorts of racist names. We drove on by and did not talk about the incident, but I felt that any chance I had of convincing him to remain in Louisiana was lost. In August, one of the Morgan City elders advised Geronimo that he intended to put him in contact with a Los Angeles organization called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. The elder was related to a Los Angeles African-American who was related to a Panther leader named Alprentis Bunchy Carter, also from Louisiana. Those Panthers got some good ideas the elder told Pratt, but they need help organizing and defending themselves against the cops. You could do them a lot of good. A few weeks later, Geronimo's pretty sister Amelda, a brilliant mathematician like their father, declared her summer vacation over and announced that she was ready to return to her classes at California State University at Los Angeles, where she was working toward a master's degree, dating the football star Mel Farr and rolling out pie dough 
for the fantasy bakery on the midnight shift. I'll drive you to LA, Geronimo said. There's a dude out there I'm supposed to meet. He and the bank shared ownership of a 1967 Pontiac GTO two-door convertible, white over red, and he spent much of his time waxing and polishing. Just one problem, he told his sister. We got to go by way of Fort Bragg so I can say goodbye to my girlfriend. Fort Bragg? Amelda said. We're going from Morgan City to Los Angeles by the hypotenuse? Sister and brother kissed their parents goodbye and began their triangular tour by driving hundreds of miles through the heart of the South. Both were disheartened by the decrepit dwellings inhabited by blacks. I thought the slave houses were all torn down, Geronimo said. They spent two days in Fayetteville, visited friends in Washington, then headed west to Chicago. Geronimo drove fast, reveling in his freedom as a civilian with a hot new car, no second lieutenants to order him around, and no incoming mortar fire. What the hell, he told his sister as they drove through anthracite country on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. I got a little vacation time coming. I'll take you to your school. See what I can do for this bunchy guy and drive back home. Brother and sister pulled into Chicago the day of the police riot that stained the city, its mayor, and the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Geronimo was profoundly affected. I saw the cops swinging their batons and the helicopters dipping down, and it almost made me flip out. I'd just left a place where gunships fired into hamlets. To me, it was a sign of oppression. I began to transfer that into this. I think that's when I really began disliking cops. I knew how they thought, how easy it was for low-ranking authority figures to lose their balance and control. I saw it every day in NAM. The strong preying on the weak. That's bad. The weak preying on the weak. That's the worst. I was glad to get out of Chicago. Chapter 4 Another War On the 6th of September, 1968, Amelda and Geronimo Pratt crossed into California on Route 66 and into racial conflict unlike any they'd ever encountered on the bayou. After dropping Amelda off at Cal State, Geronimo spent a few days catching up on his siblings. Virginia was teaching at Markham Junior High. Charles had worked his way through UCLA as a house painter and janitor, taken a master's degree in qualitative data analysis at the University of Southern California and was employed by Systems Development Corporation in Santa Monica. Jackie was finishing up at Cal State and working part-time as a bookbinder. Three days after arriving in Los Angeles, Geronimo met Bunchy Carter. He was somebody you took to right away. 
Bunchy was like my father, my brothers, like Sergeant Maddox. A man. I'll always miss Bunchy. Alprentice Bunchy Carter was founder of the Southern California chapter of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, later shortened. After a bout of polio as a child in his hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana, he'd gone to Los Angeles with his mother, Nola May, and enrolled in a therapeutic dance class. He appeared in a Little Rascals episode and had a brief career as a middleweight boxer. For a few years, he was a member of the 5,000-member Slauson Gang and became the leader of its most violent arm, the Ice Pick Gang. By the time Geronimo met him, Carter had already served a sentence for robbery at Soledad State Prison, where he came under the militant influence of the Black Muslims and Malcolm X. Now, at 26, he was living with his mother in the heart of of the South Central Ghetto. A colleague described him as an uncanny composite of artist, street nigger, poet, and revolutionary. He was also a natural leader with scalding contempt for the dashiki-clad students who strutted around UCLA campus quoting Kwame Nkrumah. In 1967, a year before Geronimo's arrival in Los Angeles, Carter had started the Southern California branch of the Black Panthers after becoming acquainted with Minister of Information Eldridge Cleaver in prison. In a study made years later, the Reverend James McCloskey of the Centurion Ministries described the trizophrenic nature of the Los Angeles group. There were three faces or sides of the LABPP under Bunchy's leadership. They were political, military, and underground. The political tried to win the hearts and minds of the people. The military gathered a wide variety of weaponry and made fortifications for the revolution and battle against the police and rival black organizations and the underground consisted of criminal armed robberies against businesses and banks to liberate money for personal and organizational use. In addition to the funds received from the very wealthy liberal white benefactors such as Jane Fonda and Gene Seberg. Bunchy's underground operatives were drawn and selected only from those who he knew well over the years from the streets and gangs of Los Angeles. This was a secret operation entrusted to only those tested on the streets of LA. These people had come up from the streets and gangs and had graduated from street crime to armed robbery of businesses. Bunchy's underground did not rob individual people for a few dollars or credit cards. They robbed institutions, not individuals. Bunchy kept the underground side separate from the political and military side. Bunchy Carter immediately saw Geronimo Pratt's value to the military face of the organization. The local Panther leader had always deplored the war in Vietnam. Why should the black man 
fight the yellow man for the white man. But he admired Pratt for his courage in battle. The street fighter and the war hero eased into a friendship and Bunchy assigned his young colleague a new name. Geronimo Gijaga, which he explained meant Geronimo of the Jaga, a tribe of feared African warriors. In prison later, Pratt had fond memories of their close friendship. Bunchy was a striking dude, slender with big round molasses colored eyes, a woolly bully natural and a thick black mustache. He had a mean look but a gentle side too. Whenever somebody sang the Panther Anthem, you could see how it touched him. He spoke the Queen's English. He was always fighting off the ladies and offering me his rejects, but they didn't take to me. I still said Pecan for Pecan, Mara for Mira, Sep for Syrup, Axed for Asked. He gave me speech lessons because he didn't want me embarrassing myself when I spoke. People would giggle and laugh and it made me stick out. Ladies broke up. It was always, say what? Hey dude, where you from? Bunchy taught me adjectives, adverbs, gerunds, participles, my sister Jenny was teaching English and she tutored me too. I didn't improve a whole lot, but at least I could be understood. Pratt soon abandoned his plan to double back to Morgan City. It would always be his home and someday he would return, but Charles, Imelda, Jackie, and Jenny ganged up on him and talked him into enrolling in UCLA's high potential program majoring in black studies and political science with minors in linguistics, history, and sociology. The program was limited to 50 minority students. Great, he reported sarcastically when he returned from his first classes. I always wanted to know about the Ashanti Wars. Bunchy Carter was already in his second year in the high potential program. The two young Louisianans spent so much time together that Geronimo began serving as the Panther leader's ex officio bodyguard. They were called the Black Panthers for self-defense and that word self-defense is all I needed to hear. It's what the elders kept telling me. Who'll defend the black man if he won't defend himself? The hair stood up on my neck when Bunchy read me a line from Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Live with your head in the lion's mouth, Bunchy said. Even better, be the fucking lion. He turned me onto writers I never heard of. Gene Toomer, Zora Neale Hurston, County Cullen, Claude McKay, Nella Larson. Folks who weren't afraid to take racial issues head on. Man, it was a new world. He made me read Che Guevara, Chairman Mao, 
Cleaver's Soul on Ice, James Baldwin, Frantz Fanon, Malcolm X, Lennon, Hegel. I fell in love with books. Bunchy was deliberately propagandizing me, indoctrinating me. I knew that. I ate it up. In Pratt's first semester at UCLA, the two friends sat up late every night talking philosophy and politics with black intellectuals. At first, he questioned the concept of using force of arms to bring about racial equality, a keystone of the Panther program. Bunchy argued that no Panther wanted to take to the streets and gun down whites. But before we gain equality, we got to regain our dignity. There's a lot of dignity behind an M15. In the daytime, the new friends cut classes for pistol and rifle practice in the desert, and Geronimo drilled Bunchy and some of the other Panthers in weaponry. At night, they began attending rallies for the imprisoned Panther leader, Huey P. Newton, and listening to Fuck Governor Reagan speeches by fellow students. We went to rallies where you half expected to see somebody sling a grenade. But Bunchy kept things cool, taught us how stupid it was to hate all whites just because of a few. Some fool would talk about putting sharpshooters on our roofs and picking off squad cars. Bunchy would say, hey, jive motherfucker, we defend against cops. We don't offend. We don't punch we counter punch bunchy quoted eldridge cleaver in their rage against the police against police brutality the blacks lose sight of the fundamental reality that the police are only an instrument for the implementation bunchy taught us if somebody sicks a killer dog on your mama and kills her are you going to spend the rest of your life trying to kill that dog or are you going to deal with the dog's trainer? He said, remember, the cops are lumpen proletarian like us. There's assholes in the Panthers, too. You got to learn to pick and choose before you stigmatize people. Otherwise, you end up as stupid and prejudiced as they are. Not every Black Panther agreed, and the organization was already splintering into warring factions, a process accelerated by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. A year before Geronimo's arrival in Los Angeles, the director had proclaimed the Black Panther Party for self-defense the greatest threat to the internal security of the country and authorized electronic eavesdropping. Armed with inside information, agents found it easy to set one panther against another. Through its existence, the BPP had always been an amalgam of young and angry African Americans, many of whom, like Pratt, still didn't know their own minds. Some were genuinely committed radicals, some genuinely committed troublemakers. They were the angry, disenfranchised, conflicted, suspicious, insulted, 
and traumatized descendants of six generations of slaves. They were both roguery and a reaction to roguery, their agenda a mix of black rage, black pride, radicalism, and idealism, some of it as rational as a train wreck. Most of Eunice Petty Pratt's offspring were dubious about the revolutionary group and tried to warn Geronimo away. His older brother, Timothy, quoted the statement by Malcolm X that you cannot lead people who are not ready to be led and added his own opinion. And I certainly don't believe that African Americans are ready to revolt. Geronimo replied with another quote. If somebody goes upside your head, knock him on his ass. Who said that? Tim asked. Daddy. Sister Jacqueline, as pious as their mother, advised Geronimo to apply his youthful energy and idealism to more conventional activities. Gerard, I told him, you're not like those Black Panthers. They're mostly from cities. You're not. They're angry. You're not. Why can't you do something else to benefit our race? Doctor? Lawyer? You're too smart to be a Black Panther. But he'd come straight from Vietnam, a young kid still not thinking clearly. His blood was running hot and he was influenced by his brother Jack and Jack was as militant as those other Louisiana boys, Bunchy Carter and Eldridge Cleaver. There was no way my thinking was going to prevail. After Geronimo entered UCLA in September 1968, his life began to spin out of orbit so wildly that in later years he was barely able to distinguish one upheaval from the next. Shortly before his enrollment, three Panthers had been killed and two officers wounded in a shootout involving a traffic stop. Everybody was buzzing about that case. The fourth Panther was tried for assault with intent to commit murder and a jury acquitted him in two hours. Bunchy and me, we were happy about that verdict. Seems like we went from one hot incident to another. So much was going on, I felt like I exchanged one war zone for another. A few months after his arrival in Los Angeles, Pratt had become bonded to the Black Panthers through Bunchy Carter and his co-leader, John Huggins, a graduate of the genteel Boston Latin School, whose personal slogan was, Educate to Liberate. The two Panther leaders introduced him to members in Los Angeles and Oakland and briefed him on party plans and goals. Soon, the ex-sergeant from the Bayou country was serving breakfast to ghetto children, distributing clothes, helping to set up a program of sickle cell anemia testing, repairing plumbing for seniors, arguing for the introduction of black history courses. Like his sisters and brothers, he was a quick study and was soon teaching in formal classes of his own political education, personal hygiene, the anthropology of racism. He also helped to familiarize the L.A. Panthers with their growing arsenal, Winchester rifles, AR-18s, M1 carbines, 
M15s and M16s, shotguns and pistols and grenade launchers, a 55 caliber anti-tank gun, and an old crossbow that looked like something that might have been assembled at the Morgan City dump. In mid-December, Pratt flew to Oakland to attend a series of Central Committee meetings about local racial problems, including a black student's strike that had shut down San Francisco State College. In Oakland, the Panthers and the police department were locked in warfare. Geronimo learned about the soul breaker cells that city jailers maintained for difficult prisoners. It was said that no one except co-founder Huey P. Newton had ever lasted more than two days in the cells before turning into a slobbering wreck. Each unit consisted of four black walls and a rubber floor. There was no light, no toilet, no bed, no sound, and after a while, no up or down. They use those cells to create snitches. One of the Oakland members explained, by the time a dude spend an hour in there, he'll rat out his mama. At meetings during Geronimo's week in Oakland, he spoke eloquently about heroin-addicted soldiers in Vietnam and suggested that known users be expelled from the party. When I got back to L.A., Bunchy said he'd heard cool things about me. He also told me that the cops shot a black kid in Watts and killed a nine-year-old for stealing a candy bar. Things were turning bad. But the worst was what happened to Captain Franco. Six days before Christmas 1968, Franco Diggs, leader of one of Bunchy Carter's underground cells and a BPP elder statesman at 40, had been found lying face up on a south side sidewalk with three bullet holes in his head. Geronimo was stunned. Captain Franco had driven him to the Los Angeles airport in Pratt's red and white GTO for the flight to Oakland. The angry Carter blamed the Los Angeles police for the death of his old comrade from the Slauson gang days. By Panther calculations, a total of 60 black citizens had been killed by Los Angeles police in 1967 and 1968 and 25 were unarmed. Chapter 5 Harassment In the first months of 1969, the LAPD's Urban Counterinsurgency Task Force, known as the Panther Unit, stepped up its program of stopping Panther cars and rousting the occupants. Party documents were thrown into gutters. Bundles of the newspaper, the Black Panther, disappeared in sewers. Police would order a driver to the curb, break his taillight, then stop him a few blocks away for defective lights. Panthers were arrested on suspicion of crimes ranging from reckless driving to murder and held in the Labyrinth 77th Division Station, oldest in the city, where they were interviewed, photographed, 
and had their names added to intelligence files as high-risk offenders. Footnote 8 The building was built in the 1920s and was already in an advanced state of disrepair when Raymond Chandler used it as a setting in his 1940 book, Farewell, My Lovely. End of footnote. At night, officers shuttled detainees from precinct to precinct so they couldn't be bailed out. Sometimes the arresting officers drew their guns, ordered their victims to their knees, and fired random shots into the ground or over their heads. One member of the Panther unit openly bragged to a party leader that he fired a thousand rounds of practice a day so I can be sure to kill niggers like you. When a pregnant panther dared a policeman to pull the trigger, he replied that he could shoot her in the stomach and kill two birds with one stone. Nor was Los Angeles the only city where confrontations between police and radical black groups were escalating. Our people were getting massacred and Bunchy ordered me to go around the country and teach self-defense, Geronimo recalled. I went to the areas where there had been marches and riots, clan activity where our people had been set on by dogs and fire hoses till they dropped and I taught them disciplined resistance. I talked in churches where children were firebombed. I met with teachers in schools where snipers had killed black students. I went into homes the Klan shot up with automatic rifle fire at night. I showed our people how to construct barriers, fortify buildings, handle guns, patrol a city nonviolently, read maps. I made them dig tunnels and use the dirt to fill up sandbags to line their walls. When the worst police raids began, this saved a lot of lives. Everything I taught was military preparedness, urban warfare, defensive structure, just what the elders sent me to the army to learn. When he returned from this first cross-country trip, Geronimo found two FBI agents waiting at his doorstep. They asked me a couple questions. I told them I didn't know nothing. Before they left, the taller one said, I guess you know you're a dead man. I said, hey, I already died three times in Vietnam. I was just shining them on. They gave me a look and left. Geronimo reported the confrontation to Bunchy Carter and John Huggins. Nothing new about this, Bunchy said. FBI been on our ass from the beginning. They let the local cops do the dirty work, but they're always around. The discussion turned to a pressing intraracial problem. Relations were strained between the local Panthers and a black organization called U.S. United Slaves, led by a brilliant student named Ronald Everett, a Baltimorean who had shaved his head, donned dark glasses, dressed in African garb, affected an English accent, and recreated himself as Ron Karenga. 
His followers called him Malana, a Swahili word meaning great teacher. A few of the Panthers engaged in their own brand of racism by deriding him as Porkchop and his followers as Korangatangs. Members of the U.S. organization considered themselves strict black nationalists and took issue with the Panthers' demand for integration. Lately, the animosity between the two black groups had been worsening. Looking back, Geronimo recalled, you got to wonder why two African-American campus groups were fighting with each other. What a waste. We all wanted freedom for our people. Seemed like we got further apart every day. There was a rumor that the LAPD and the FBI were trying to set us against each other, but years went by before we could prove it. And by then, it was too late. The blood was already running. We got anonymous phone calls, letters, insults, taunts. We found hate mail in our lockers at school. Your girlfriend fucks Karinga. You get a phone call. I just left U.S. headquarters. Your wife's panties are on the wall. Of course, it was all bullshit. But after the third or fourth report, you begin to wonder. We found out later that the United Slaves were hearing the same things about us. Right after New Year's 1969, the situation turned real bad. Coringa and U.S. were trying to control the Black Studies program at UCLA and Bunchy and John Huggins were arguing that the issues should be settled by vote. It was an honest disagreement like college kids have all the time. There was a campus rally the night of January 16. Fist fights broke out. You couldn't hear the speakers over the booze. Just afternoon the next day, January 17, Geronimo was visiting an injured panther in the UCLA Medical Center when a woman burst in and reported that Bunchy Carter and John Huggins had been shot in Campbell Hall. He ran across the campus but was stopped by police at the entrance. Hysterical onlookers told him that the two Panther leaders had been walking out of an acrimonious meeting of the Black Students' Union when U.S. officers opened fire. Footnote 9 Decades later, when it no longer mattered, Geronimo learned that the earliest reports were incorrect. It was John Huggins who fired first. End of footnote. Huggins and Carter fell so close that their fingertips touched. Frightened students trampled them as they fled from the building and many jumped from windows. Geronimo's first thought was of Huggins' wife Erica and their two-week-old baby. As he was driving toward the black ghetto, he heard a news report the UCLA students had been pronounced dead. In the late afternoon traffic, the drive took almost two hours. Geronimo tried to imagine Bunchy and John lying lifeless in the morgue and found the vision no more comprehensible than the sight of Jack Pratt lying on his side between the anvil and the chicken coop. 
for a long time he known that Bunchy was no pious seminarian. His ice pick gang had been named for its leader's weapon of choice. Bunchy might even have killed a few men in gang fights. Well, so did I, Geronimo told himself. What was Vietnam but a gang fight? He was my friend. I loved him like a man. When he arrived at the Huggins apartment near the Hollywood Park racetrack, policemen with drawn guns ordered him to lie face down on the driveway. A shotgun barrel dug into the side of his face. He heard one of the officers banging on the door and called out, There's nothing but women in there, man. The cops led four females and a screaming infant from the apartment. Other officers went inside and confiscated what they later described as Panther guns. On the way to the 70th Precinct Station, a plainclothesman told one of the women, You're the oldest whore of the pink pussies, so you must be the one with the biggest hole. At the station, the women were ordered to remain shackled together even while using the toilet. Erica Huggins nursed her daughter, but after the women were informed that they were being held for conspiracy with the intent to commit assault with a deadly weapon, the baby was taken away. A sergeant explained that they'd been tipped off that Pratt and the others were bent on revenge against the U.S., and the police had sped to the Huggins place to intercept them and head off a retaliatory bloodbath. Geronimo and two other unarmed males were arrested on the same charge. Across Central Avenue from Panther headquarters, police emerged from behind a building facade and arrested every African American in sight. They confiscated ammunition, medical supplies, Panther literature, propaganda, gas masks, address books, and marijuana. By midnight, nearly a hundred Panthers had been herded into paddy wagons, driven to Los Angeles County Jail, booked, fingerprinted, run through showers, sprayed for bugs, and locked into seven by eight foot maximum security cells, Police confiscated party files and poured over boxes of information, driver's licenses and license plate numbers, unlisted phone numbers, names and addresses of financial supporters like the actresses Jane Fonda and Jean Seberg, who used the code name Aretha on her checks, and prominent Hollywood citizens. The LAPD's war against the Panthers was now fully engaged. At the jail, Geronimo's emotions flickered from embarrassment to rage. I hadn't been in a cell since Johnny Lee Emerson talked up to a white girl. One of the jailers told me to lean over and spread him. I said, huh? For what? He said, none of your fucking business. It wouldn't be the last time a guard asked me to spread, and I would never do it. Didn't take me long to learn that a lot of those jailers 
and prison guards and other people in authority were the same kind of son of a bitches I had in my platoon, the ones that were empowered beyond their own ability to handle it. I'd stopped that kind of shit in my platoon and now the cops were doing it to my people in Los Angeles. I felt ashamed. After 72 hours, all charges were dropped for lack of evidence and Geronimo and his friends were freed in time to learn what had happened at John Huggins' funeral in his native New Haven, Connecticut. Huggins' parents, a Yale steward and a librarian, had planned a dignified low-key service. FBI agents entered the church to shoot pictures of the body in its open casket. At the door, another agent photographed mourners. The lawman departed after copying the names on the sign-in log. The Los Angeles funeral for Bunchy Carter threatened to be an explosive affair. The city was waterlogged by the longest sustained rainfall in a century. Yellow slickered patrolmen ringed the crowd while men in dark suits snapped pictures. Under a canopy of umbrellas, Thousands of mourners filled the ghetto church and overflowed into the street. Twosomes and threesomes passed through the crowd singing the VPP anthem as a dirge. Along the walls of the church, Panthers stood at attention in their black berets, powder blue shirts, and black leather jackets. Plainclothesmen from the Panther unit took notes as party chief of staff David Hilliard eulogized his colleague. A preacher based his sermon on how Moses had delivered his people from bondage after killing an Egyptian soldier who was beating a slave to death. Geronimo thought, how many times have I heard Mama tell the same story? At party headquarters that night, he was besieged by angry and confused Panthers. Jackie Pratt recalled, People were coming to my brother. What are we going to do? Geronimo, we're looking to you, man. What are we going to do? He put them off as long as he could. He'd say, I'm just a country boy from Louisiana. Don't ask me. But they didn't know where else to turn. With his friend Bunchy Carter dead, Pratt tried to focus his anger on the police but he was also disturbed with himself. He thought about leaving college and returning to Morgan City to help his mother and father. He had no taste for more combat, whatever the cause. He might even join his brother Timothy at Southern University in Baton Rouge, a safer place than the battlegrounds of UCLA, even for quarterbacks. He was sick of fighting racial wars in an unaccustomed setting a world away from home. Chapter 5 Driving While Black As police pressure increased, so did Geronimo's need to stick by his fellow Panthers. The members were tailed wherever they went. Suddenly, the chronically underfinanced LAPD seemed to have inexhaustible resources. Pratt's red and white GTO convertible, nicknamed the GOAT, 
and borrowed by BPP functionaries as needed was stopped so many times that it was repainted blue in order to throw police off. Footnote 10 Local police had a reputation for enforcing the offense known as DWB, driving while black. Once they stopped Johnny Cochran in Hollywood, ordering him out of his car at gunpoint and terrifying his two children. The two officers apologized when they learned he was an assistant district attorney. End of footnote. At one time or another, officers impounded the Panther car, stripped it, ran it up a telephone pole, smashed its signals, poured sugar in the gas tank, and pitched the seats into the street. One drizzly night, police aimed their pistols at a three-week-old Panther baby and jacked shells into the chamber of their shotguns as they ordered the six occupants out of the car. What's this about, officer? Geronimo asked. It's about a possible murder, the cop answered. Fellow Panther Roger, Blue Lewis, was flung to the ground, choked, and kneed in the groin. At the precinct, a sergeant extinguished a cigarette on his arm. After three hours, friends and relatives began arriving at the station, alerted by a Panther backup car that also had been stopped by police. A sergeant told the new arrivals, I wouldn't put it above you people to blow up a police station. So, for reasons of division security, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. By midnight, everyone had been released, and the murder charges were never mentioned again. A few days later, two policemen wrestled Geronimo to the ground as he walked out the front door of Panther headquarters. One yelled in his ear, Why'd you draw a bead on me from that window? I didn't, said the disgusted Pratt, but maybe I should have. He was released after an exchange of angry looks. When Geronimo attempted to shuttle UCLA students to the ghetto to help in the Panther programs, police curbed his car, took names, and ordered the students back to campus. We were okay on the Santa Monica freeway, but as soon as we hit the city streets, the cops would pull us over. One day, I was carrying a bunch of black students to distribute used clothes in South Central. Cop makes them get out and put their hands against the car. I said, what's the charge, officer? He stopped to think. Then he said, too many blacks in one car. Pratt began logging the stops, but quit when he reached 50. His dormitory room was burglarized twice and regularly searched. He wondered how many listening devices had been planted in his walls, in his GTO, in his relatives' houses where he sometimes overnighted for peace and privacy. L.A. police and FBI agents searched the homes of his brothers Jackie and Charles and interviewed his sister Virginia. A dozen officers in black and white squad cars raided his sister Imelda's place while Geronimo was visiting. She tried to explain that she was putting herself through college as a night shift business.
Baker and had no connection with the Panthers, but they ransacked her two rooms. When Geronimo assigned young Panthers to shadow their shadowers and report acts of harassment to police officials, an admittedly provocative technique that had caused bloody confrontations in Oakland, desk sergeants refused to take their complaints. One of the young Panthers was told to back off or you'll find yourself cleaning our shitters. Even in the Deep South, Geronimo had never seen such pressure. The cops were like an occupying force. To them, we were a lower form of life. They thought we wanted to take over Los Angeles by brute force, kill the men, and rape the women. It was a time warp thing, all the way back to the frontier days. We were the Indians. Surveillance cameras appeared across the street from Panther headquarters. BPP members took time off from school or work to defend themselves against petty charges in the lower courts where judges seemed predisposed to believe police testimony. He pulled a knife on me, your honor. He tried to run me down with his car. A standard technique was to wrench ignition wires loose or remove distributor caps to disable Panther vehicles. Legitimately parked cars would be ticketed and towed to the city pound. The party's limited treasury became drained. Fundraising fell off after police confronted financial supporters at Hollywood rallies and ripped up donation checks. Panthers were arrested for selling the party newspaper on street corners without the proper licenses, their stocks confiscated. Children who took part in the free breakfast program had to make their way past uniformed policemen to enter the ghetto buildings. When the police weren't disrupting and harassing, they were ridiculing and taunting. Jungle Bunny became the favorite epithet, replacing Spade, Dinge, Jig, and Jigaboo, although the universal nigger never went out of style. Two Metro Squad members idled away their evenings by riding up and down Central Avenue wearing foot-high Afro wigs and bright dashikis and yelling, Power to the people! through a high-powered bullhorn. On one of her frequent trips to jail, a female panther noticed a banner on the wall of the booking room. Pigs 11, Panthers 0. If it was a game, it soon turned deadly. A delegation of California Panthers had already unnerved police by appearing in public carrying rifles and sidearms, their legal right until the law was changed. While Panther children marched up and down chanting, The revolution has come, it's time to pick up the gun, national BPP leaders instituted a firm policy about firearms. No concealed weapons, no gunfighting or cowboy antics. But every member was expected to practice self-defense for himself and his family, and each household was required to have at least one loaded shotgun. If the cops attack, we'll go down firing, one of the leaders told a reporter. Later, Geronimo Pratt was asked in court 
to define self-defense in the Panther context. It was based on the principle from an older organization that if a nation fails to protect its citizens, he testified, then they cannot condemn those who take up the task themselves and in light of what was happening in the early part of the 1960s, no one was really protecting the black people and we had to protect ourselves. That's the basic principle of self-defense. He repeated a Malcolm X declaration that he first learned from Bunchy Carter. We should be peaceful, law-abiding, but the time has come to fight back in self-defense whenever and wherever the black man is being unjustly and unlawfully attacked, to which Carter has always added, we may suffer, we may die, but even if we don't regain our freedom, we'll regain our dignity. Context of white supremacy. What, uh, that victim of racism, what is he known for saying? What's the difference between a dignified slave and a silly slave? Right on for dignity. Context of white supremacy. Uh, that is our first audio segment. We had a number of uh, tech issues. Uh, I don't think I did anything uh, incompetent uh, or reckless. Uh, it just seemed like the Wi-Fi signal kept disappearing. And I normally have had pretty strong uh, Wi-Fi uh, for the last six months. Been super elated uh, with it. But the signal just kept uh, dropping out for some odd reason. And I also had trouble dialing in today. But we shall see. Uh, hopefully, the well, no, hopefully the archive should be uh, fine. But we did have some some drops there for folks uh, who are listening in. Seems like it should be streaming okay now. But that was very uh, upsetting as we proceeded through the first portion of the reading. Uh, the number to dial: seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh, we're picking up <clears throat> these chapters are not numbered and I don't like that when reading books especially when we're reading an audiobook here uh, because it helps kind of keep everything in line as to what chapter we're in and all the rest so people can follow along so I will say the chapter number when the audio begins, but I've lost count. I think this might be chapter six or somewhere in there, but it's the chapter deep seated hatred. That's what we will pick up at for audio segment two. Uh, I will just get in quickly. Number one, uh, there was a segment on democracy. Now my BFF, Amy Goodman, putting in work all these years. Uh, they did a segment that actually had ta Coates father uh, on the program. Uh, he is a black bookstore owner uh, and and former Black Panther Party member. Fruit doesn't, or the, what do they say? The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. We read Mr. Coates, one of his works on the book club before, Between the World and Me. Uh, they had one of the white people who broke into the office, the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, uh, in the 70s to steal the Cointelpro uh, papers. Uh, that was just two days ago on March 9. Interestingly, uh, Mr. Coates' father said that, number one, they were talking about how Cointelpro attacked black 
bookstores. That's something I hadn't heard as much information about, but disrupting any means of black people getting constructive information. He talked about how they targeted he and even I was thinking the uh, infamous black bookstore in New York that Malcolm X uh, used to visit regularly. Like, oh, yeah, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Third World Press with Dr. Welsing and the ISIS papers, too. Mm-hmm. Very makes a lot of sense. But uh, they were talking on that por- uh, report and they were just talking about the uh, confusion of Pro and even still not knowing today the full ramifications the people who are most confused about racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works, are classified as black. Non-white people in general, black people specifically, we are the ones who are not figuring it out, very late to figure it out, and still don't really understand. Uh, that's why I think it'll be great to read this book. Uh, the only other thing, uh, Vietnam, I didn't really think if like we had a, a cows listener who asked me before we started reading this book. Hey, Gus, do you know some great books on Vietnam? And I could not uh, think of great books that talk about uh, the Vietnam War and particularly in a context of white supremacy racism. I didn't think of this book as a Vietnam book, but it certainly is. I mean, Geronimo Pratt front center is a two tour Vietnam veteran. So nothing else to be said, but I mean, he is talking a lot about direct experiences that he had with racism and making the parallels to what he was seeing there, why he even enrolled in the first place and trying to transfer those skills. Like this is a great book. If you want to get some details and even the return talking about the black soldiers who got addicted to heroin. That is huge. Uh, and then who they come back and the impact that this has on them. That is enormously important. I didn't think of it that way before, but rereading it now, this would definitely qualify. If you want a book to learn information, particularly to get information from a black perspective, so-called this would be a good, and the, DDT. That was the other component. All that talk about anti-Asian violence. I said that at the beginning. They got a documentary that is about to come out. Now talk about O.J. Simpson. We just spent all that. It was the book we just read. The People versus Rental James. I know you'll remember it. I'm sure these folks thought about it with the title. The documentary on DDT and its 50-year legacy of chemical and biological warfare in Vietnam and beyond is the people versus Agent Orange. But that'll be coming out sometime soon. I don't know if they'll focus on uh, U.S. troops who were also impacted by this. They got I don't know if that's friendly fire or, you know, you got got to have some losses. So tough ones. We'll try and get as many of the Geronimo Pratt's in there and have them be the ones who get uh, suffocated and have lifelong illnesses from DDT. Uh, but the documentary should be coming out. And that's. <laughs> medical apartheid worldwide thought that was super important a anti-asian violence is going to be discussed vietnam war there you go there's another example of anti-asian violence get to some of the folks who wrote in really quick and then we'll get to our callers first person uh wrote in with commentary she says thanks for selecting the book on geronimo pratt for the book club i am keen to understand more about the cointel pro program everyone should be and, of course, the work of Johnny Cochran. Everyone should be. I purchased his biography at the start of the O.J. Simpson reading, but decided to wait until it was finished before starting the book. I think I'll wait until this reading on Geronimo Pratt is complete before starting so that I can fully appreciate it and Johnny Cochran's life work. These are the big two parts of that book other than his life. Uh, Mr. Pratt, 
O.J. Simpson. In terms of last week's reading, Geronimo Pratt was certainly confused as a young man, so no surprise that he is affected by anti-blackness. That's the next chapter about his appearance. However, I found the lawyer's attention to Geronimo's appearance very intriguing. Geronimo Pratt looks black. I agree. There is no ambiguity about his appearance, and I do not believe the lawyer, even at that time, had not seen a black person with the same skin tone and facial features of Geronimo Pratt. From the reading, it seems Pratt observed him and presumed he was wondering about his ethnic makeup. I believe the lawyer was practicing racism by humoring his assumption. The only people confused about racism are black people. Echo, 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 echo. Uh, Get in one more uh, report. Let's see. Uh, From reading number one, the Pratts of Morgan City. We had a reputation. Nobody messes with the guys from across the tracks. The railroad track is strategically used to limit access to resources by non-white victims and provide potential physical barrier for control. I wonder if across the tracks has a bubbly creek. I was just thinking about that. Packing them in. We read that last year. Environmental racism in Chicago. Uh, Let's see. Number two, the black community needed trained men. One of the black characters in White Dog, double mentions this week, also volunteered for Vietnam. I always thought the most, oh, I almost, almost, I always thought most black soldiers in Vietnam were drafted based solely on my own fears about being drafted and the experiences of family members during that era. But that may be incorrect. Seems like we've heard that a few times. Black people voluntarily going to try to get skills to come back and help black people reading number two soldiers medal i thought the slave houses were all torn down geronimo said i found this statement interesting given that he grew up across the tracks Uh, from the chapter another war number one j edgar hoover proclaimed the black panther party for self-defense the greatest threat to the internal security of the country all the current media and apparent FBI focus on so-called white supremacist groups is like is likely insincere. I suspect that the FBI always sees the real threat as black identity extremists. Absolutely. From the coin, uh, excuse me, from the democracy now segment from two days ago, you don't even have to be an extremist. They said, hey, any place where there are black people. Get some informants, be paying attention, might need to, you know, falsely accuse them of some sort of criminal activity and throw them in the hole like anywhere's niggers, whether they're bookstore owners or in the church choir or the janitor who might have read an NAACP pamphlet like anybody classified as black is a suspect. That's what Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly said. If you are black. Your loyalties are suspect because we know black people are treated like garbage. Those are his exact words. You are a suspect because we know we treat niggers like garbage. Uh, Harassment. Uh, At the night, officers shuttled the detainees from precinct to precinct so they could be bailed out. Reminds me of the tactics used by the Chicago Police Department in their black ops site at Holman Square. Mm-hmm. Officer uh, Ed Burge. Number two, relations were strained between the local Panthers and a black organization called U.S. United Slaves, led by a brilliant student named Ronald Everett, recreated himself as Ron Karinga. His followers called him Moalana. Conflicts between black organizations is expected. For example, 
Black Lives Matter versus the International Freedom Alliance, founded by Michael Brown Sr. Coringa was also mentioned in the book club, reading White Dog. He was accused of being an informer in White Dog. I recently heard him on a podcast of the Carl Nelson show. Lots of white dog references uh, in this book. Driving. Well, they're written at the same or They're written about a same period of time. So lots of overlap. Uh, The next chapter, Driving While Black. The members were tailed wherever they went. Suddenly, the chronically underfinanced LAPD seemed to have inexhaustible resources in the lower courts where judges seemed predisposed to believe police testimony. Further evidence of coordination between suspected racists, F- FBI, LAPD, lawyers, courts, etc., which was also brought out in the O.J. Simpson case. Absolutely. I was hoping people remembered that like, dang, didn't we just read a book where a black male had like all of these uh, enforcement bodies aligned against them where the FBI and CIA, uh, Secret Service and LAPD and all these different entities have hopped in like, oh yeah, we're going to make sure we get this nigga. Like, absolutely. Like, people are volunteer Chicago police, other police departments are working together like these folks normally don't even get along and argue over jurisdiction and things. All of a sudden, they can find organizational harmony. Inter-organizational harmony on the basis of prosecuting O.J. Simpson or Geronimo Pratt or any other black person. The number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Other folks uh, who dialed in, uh, if you have thoughts, observations, uh, parallels to White Dog, perhaps, uh, lines should be open. Feel free. Can I be heard? Uh, let's see. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Much obliged. He's yielding. Uh, retired firefighter, proceed. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to uh, everyone. Uh, you kind of like what's going out near uh, the end of your uh, your report, uh, Gus. Uh, just just to let you know. Uh, yeah, uh, but this past reading, uh, it, it becomes more clear to me on uh, with the activity of Cointempro. Uh, you know, it was really, uh, really getting in there. Basically, what, what, what the effect, I think the effect that it takes that at, with, with the Black Panther Party at first, people who non-white black people who were not a part of it were very much interested in it, you know, within the area where black people stay at, that's called sometimes a community. Uh, but with the advent of the stepped up routine from law enforcement of all different levels and uh, the different tricks that they were uh, involved with uh, uh, designing to uh, destroy not only the Black Panther Party, but other organizations fighting each other. At that point in time, it seems like I would think that the people that weren't involved directly with them were like shying away from the Black Panther Party, (laughs) you know, Uh, because it's like it's something we don't know what's going on, but it's something real dangerous Mm -hmm. taking place. 
And uh, it, that's what it seemed like from this reading and hearing about, you know, the stepped up uh, things that were going on, uh, deadly and, and a lot of consequences. Uh, Al Prentice Bunchy Carter, uh, quote unquote, was, was uh, deemed as a legend even before he was with the Black Panther Party. Uh, the idea with uh, Afros, uh, uh, I, I thought that uh, that the Jackson Five had the the big Afros, which was in like the early seventies and whatnot. Until I saw a picture of him, but even before him, Dr. Welsing and her sisters, you know, were wearing Afros in the mid sixties. You know, I'm talking about the the real big ones, and uh, but uh, he was uh, certainly. Uh, uh, instrumental because what he was doing at the time, he was inspired by Huey Newton. And uh, from there, he brought about some somewhere in the vicinity of 5,000 or so people into the Black Panther Party in Los Angeles. Uh, so the Los Angeles chapter of the Black Panther Party, where uh, uh, Geronimo Pratt was involved in, was huge uh, in L.A. Uh a little bit more, uh, Mel Farr. Mel Farr was a uh, a football legend uh, out of UCLA uh, and played for the Detroit Lions. I was not aware of his relationship with uh, one of Geronimo Pratt's sisters. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, 67 Pontiac GTO was a very sought-after car. Uh, I had a uh, – I, I have. I have a brother-in-law who had – uh, such a vehicle, uh, and it it was a very impressive vehicle, uh, just second in the motion based on what was read. Uh, uh, Mr. Pratt uh, seems to have been on a whole lot of historical things uh, along the way on that trip to Los Angeles with the 1968 Democratic National Convention where the, quote-unquote, the police rioted. <laughs> uh, uh, and... Uh, from uh from there uh as we know uh Bobby Seale was arrested was arrested uh for uh just showing up there uh making a speech uh yeah the term self defense was taken away from the uh the uh, uh name of the Black Panther party uh that was done by uh uh Huey Newton uh with the idea of uh, broadening some other aspects uh, of the organization itself. Uh, the Sheikah class students, uh, when I first heard that report, I knew exactly on who, who uh, uh, Mr. Geronimo was talking about uh, and uh, the uh, the pro the white supremacists made good use of it, as we all talked about, you know, with the uh, Black organizations uh, basically competing, quote-unquote, competing against one another. And in turn, it's an easy front for the white supremacists to come in. And before you know it, uh, you got black people killing each other. And that happened with uh, uh, Mr. Carter and uh, also, uh, I forgot the other gentleman's name, uh, because his wife also was a member of the Black Panther Party. She's still alive today. Uh, yeah, uh, l one more, and I'll give up the, the floor. Uh, no, that's, that's it. 
that's it for right now. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. Uh, thank you for your patience, Henry in Chicago. All right. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, page 36, uh, just previously mentioned by the retired firefighter, the uh, uh, Mr. Pratt's uh, visit to Chicago, the 1968 Democratic National Convention. And I'm surprised they didn't mention uh, the Chicago 7, uh, one in particular, Bobby Seals, uh, who was arrested during that time since you know he was – a member of the Black Panther Party, I thought that omission of that was was uh, pretty obvious. Uh, another white dog reference: uh, Jean Seberg, uh, wife of uh, white dog uh, author Romaine Gary. Um, me personally, I wasn't a big white dog fan, but you know. Um, page forty, uh, when they were talking about uh, counterpunching. Uh, we don't punch, we counterpunch the uh, metaphor of uh, true self-defense. Uh, it's interesting. Part of the COINTELPRO process of de- dismantling the Black Panthers was putting out a comic book uh, that portrayed the Black Panthers of you know, killing police. And many people had this misconception that you know, this is what the Panthers did. All they did was you know, their mission was to go out and just kill police officers. And I think even in the sense of uh, Pratt's family, you know, asking him to stay away from, you know, the, the organization, they probably had the same uh, – they probably had the same thought about them just being cop killers and not uh, talking about some of the initiatives that they've started in, you know, in uh, black neighborhoods like the breakfast program, uh, which is copied amongst a lot of uh, – a lot of public schools uh, nowadays and uh, other initiatives that the Black Panthers did. But, you know, the, the, the idea of self-defense was, was uh, obviously uh, their, their, their motto in regards to uh, police violence. But, you know, just like was, that was emphasizing this in this book about, you know, we don't, you know, we don't attack. We, you know, we, you know, we just counterpunch or, or have self-defense. Uh, Page 42, when he talked about Huey P. Newton's time in prison and this soul breaker cells, and they said that uh, Newton uh, lasted more than two days in the cell. You know, I believe that that time he spent in prison, I think that changed him, and I think they did something to uh, Mr. Newton uh, because uh, reading about him, he had kind of like a different demeanor, and I believe that was. When he got out of the prison, he and him and Eldridge Cleaver started uh, arguing, you know, heavily. So uh, I think something had they they uh, white people must have did something to him in that prison, and I think that that kind of changed him a little bit. So, uh, but I think Newton's uh, Newton's stay in prison is is not unique because I think it changes a lot of black people who you know who are in prison like that. Um, Page 44, where they talked about uh, Ron Karinga and, uh, you know, calling his uh, organization, uh, well, they were pork chop nationalists or Karangatangs, uh, obviously, uh, and I agree, following the code of no name calling. 
because uh, this basically leads into something, uh, you know, much worse. And obviously this did turn out to be a lot worse because of the fact that, you know, Bunchy Carter and, and uh, John Higgins are, you know, ends up getting killed, you know, in this whole process of um, fighting against, uh, you know, Ron Karinga. So, you know, nothing nothing comes good of, you know, black people fighting against black people. And it's kind of prevalent today in regards to uh, what's what's going on with, you know, black people in different organizations. And, you know, as much as the system does, you know, encourage us to kind of fight each other, you know, black people in the Democratic Party and black people in the Republican Party, black Christians and black Muslims, you know, ADOS versus Pan-Africanists and and it's just a it's just a mess when you're talking about what the system does to us and and how they you know pit us against each other and it's still going on you know today. Um, the police raid uh, against uh, 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 Imelda's uh, place, um, Bunchy Carter's sister. I mean not Bunchy Carter, but uh, Geronimo Pratt's sister. Uh, kind of reminds me of you know what happened to. Anjanette Young here in Chicago where they kind of raided her place while she was naked and they had the wrong place. Uh, obviously Imelda, they were, they were specifically targeting her even though she had nothing to do with the Black Panther Party, but you know, on page 50 they said, but they ransacked two of her rooms anyway. So uh, they didn't care. You know, they just wanted to see what they can find for, you know, from, from her brother. But uh, that is... Uh, that's all I have right now in my life. Much obliged, uh, Henry, in Chicago, even to have two consecutive books where they're both going to be focused largely on Los Angeles, Southern California, and Santa Monica specifically, where Chicago somehow ends up popping in there tangentially. O.J. Simpson, Knife. Here we go. They passed it and then passing through at such a historic moment. Uh, Just to that point about the incarceration and the impact, uh, there are lots of documentaries, not as much footage as is available on O.J. Simpson, but there are a lot of quality documentaries on the Panthers and specifically on Geronimo Pratt, uh, where some of the local L.A. news stations uh, did like investigative report, like lengthy investigative uh, pieces in the nineties leading up to his release. Uh, and then after he was released, like democracy now did like a hour 90 minute segment with Johnny Cochran and uh, Geronimo Pratt, where they go into a lot of details. Like there's a lot of material uh, about this case. Uh, it's kind of sad. It's not as well known as OJ Simpson. Cause the more you understand this case, like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you would look at the O.J. Simpson case with a lot more. It's the same unit, like some of the same that like, oh, yeah, I know you all. I know how you get down. Like, yeah, yeah. Any any Mark Furman monkey business like, oh, yeah, <laughs> not guilty. Let's ride. Let's ride. Uh, let's see. Other folks who uh, dialed in, if we missed you totally, proceed. Can I be heard? Mo in Dallas, yes, sir. All right. Um, <clears throat> thank you, sir. Uh, 
greetings, listeners and callers. Uh, thank you for the program, Gus. Um, I don't, I don't, I didn't take many notes. I was listening, um, listening intently and working. Um, so, starting off, uh, you started off the uh, the uh, reading with uh, with Steve Harvey um, and his opinion on O.J. Simpson, um, and and I. I I hear it different after, um, you know, reading the book. Like I, I've always believed that OJ wasn't guilty of those crimes, but what was the most disheartening about the, that particular audio segment was the, the laughter, you know, the, the agreeance in his opinion. And it just reminds me that, you know, it's, it's really a, like I'm in a very, 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 small group of people who 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 believe that this man did not commit that crime when i heard the laughter that's what I, that's how i felt um dealing with um agent orange or ddt um um i've know i've i've met a, a couple of uh, vietnam veterans um and these men uh, are exceptional people uh, to be able to to deal with those conditions um uh, the, the the gentleman that i've met um, like even at the ages of 60 and so on, like they were still like running five miles a day. Um, one of them, you know, he, he, he was a, uh, an efficient person about his health, um, uh, up until a, a, a car accident that was actually, um, initiated by one of his, uh, coughing spells, uh, due to agent orange. So, um, yeah, he lived and everything was okay. The truck, the truck was, Totaled. He ran straight through a brick wall, and it was it was just bad. He couldn't get off of the gas um, because he couldn't stop coughing. Um, the 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 barbarism um, of the Los Angeles Police Department was like just shameless, you know. Uh, uh, and I drew parallels uh, to today and how not much has changed. Um, uh, 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 like from uh, the holding a, a gun to a pregnant woman's belly. Um, I, I recall a couple of years ago, uh, a lady uh, being shot and her last words were, you know, I'm pregnant. Um, she was unarmed, I believe. Um, the shooting of a, a nine-year-old was still in a candy bar. I thought about, you know, Jameer Rice. Um, just the, uh, the, the harassment and incitement, you know, uh, uh, just, just pestering uh, Black Panther Party members, um, you know, uh, talking to them just just wild. It reminded me of uh, the the recent incident near my home in Plano, Texas. Um, I don't live in Plano; I live near Plano. But uh, the officers were were uh, accosting an 18 year old uh, young man walking down the street. You know, where you going? What you doing? What you doing? Where you going? You, you, you know, and it's just like it, um, and it's it's wild to know that, you know, these tactics were implemented then and they still haven't changed for the most part. Like, like, uh, it's, it's, uh, so it's, it's very, very interesting to learn. I'll say that I'm not too, abreast on the uh, on the functions of the Black Panther Party and what they went through. So 
I, I will continue to listen intently, and I'll try to take better notes. Um, also, um, I, I did catch the um, the parallels with sandbagging um, and fortifying homes. Uh, I thought that was I thought that was a, a great tactic and technique, and I see why the um, elders uh, uh, chose him to 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 do the task that he did. Uh, he was an exceptional person, and I appreciate his his efforts. Uh, that's all I have on me in my life. Much obliged, Mo in Dallas. Um, let's see, make sure I didn't miss it. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Some of the folks who went to Vietnam, not all, but some, uh, did go with a purpose get some tools, things I can learn to help black people. Incidentally, just to finish my thought, uh, I was responding to Henry in Chicago. He was talking about the prison impact of uh, Huey P. Newton and perhaps him coming out uh, a changed person. Uh, In one of the many documentaries on the Black Panther Party that deals with Geronimo Pratt specifically, a good chunk of it, uh, All Power to the People, uh, Geronimo Pratt, uh, this is like an older documentary. Uh, Geronimo Pratt was in greater confinement at the time, and they, they interview him uh, specifically in the film. And they talk about, they also talk about Huey P. Newton and this project, but they talk about at the time that they had uh, MK Ultra programs. We talked about some of this with John Potash uh, in his book, uh, The FBI's War Against Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders. Uh, but they had uh, MK Ultra and mind control programs, and you can have an entire team of people who are. We just study one black person. Like you can have a whole department. We just study Dr. King. Whole department. We just study Muhammad Ali. Whole department. We just study you know Eldridge Cleaver, and on and on and on. Whole department. You just study Kathleen Cleaver. You know. When you have those type of resources like the system of white supremacy, oh yeah, and they talk about that in all power to the people. And in fact, they there is a white man who talks about white people bragging about exactly what Henry in Chicago just said. Uh, a white person brags and says, "We, meaning white people, Cointel Pro, all of that, we are responsible for Huey P. Newton." behaving the way he does today we changed his thinking we changed his behavior we do that and almost articulating what I said this is what you can do when you have an entire apparatus this is what domination looks like when I can kill you whenever I feel like it kill all of you whenever I feel like it put you in greater confinement whenever I feel like it and totally change everything about your behavior and what you're interested in, even some of that. I think some of that's coming up in the book. Like we might be talking, uh, talking ahead, but I think some of that, in fact, I know some of that is coming up in the book. Like, uh, just because this is like, this is a 25 year narrative. So I think one of the reasons that I like this book, there are footnotes and unless my memory is bad, like this book is so long by the time we get later, so the party, Black Panther Party, will have dissolved, and this isn't happening anymore. And Huey P. Newton gets 
uh, thrown in greater confinement. And I think he ends up being in prison together with Geronimo Pratt. And they're like going over their notes. And uh, Yeah, you have to keep real. But I think a lot of this will come out in the book, some of it in the footnotes. I remember this being a book that gives a lot of information about uh, Cointelpro. That was one of the reasons that I remember liking it. But I could be in error uh, or my memory might be bad. Let's see. Uh, some of the notes that I took. Um, a lot of black people died in the Vietnam War conflict, uh, particularly black males. That That is a line. Marvin Gaye, retired firefighter, mentioned what's going on last week because uh, Geronimo Pratt said that what's going on? Dr. King just died and what's going on? That is mentioned in uh, Marvin Gaye's uh, "Inner City Blues." Makes me want to uh, makes me want to die. Makes me want to holler. Uh, send that boy off to die. And they did a whole lot of that with black people, and then dumped DDT on them too. Uh, let's see. Uh, he talks about possibly enrolling. Uh, Geronimo Pratt's brother Timothy wanted him to uh, enroll at Southern University, uh, but he says a weird thing happened. Uh, that they were driving past the fire station. The white folks were having a barbecue picnic. They saw us and began to call us racist names. That's why I said before. Now, this is, you know, 1960s, late 1960s when this happened. That's why I said before. Now, you rewind 10, 15 years when he said they didn't. he didn't really experience racism until his brother got attacked. I said, I don't believe that. It can't be. You all are in Louisiana in the forties and fifties and you don't see any racism like until this, I just don't believe that. Like if you're telling me you're just driving around and some white people are having a barbecue and look over at the, maybe even firefighters, they look over and say, Oh my God, nigger, get out of here. Spirit trucker coon. What are you doing? I think that probably was a pretty typical thing uh, throughout the fifties, forties, twenties, 2020s system of white supremacy. Uh, let's see. There's a lot of footage of the Chicago so-called riot uh, in many documentaries, well-documented, lots of white dog references. I thought it was so fitting for this week. They talked about uh, Bunchy Carter. Uh, he had a woolly bully natural. That's the second time I've seen this term used in the book. Uh, black hair is militant and militaristic and bullies. Now, this is Geronimo Pat Pratt's term. I just woolly hair would be enough. Bully, I'd be very resistant to using that term to describe uh, anybody's hair, particularly black people's hair. Um, but they say uh, a bunchy Carter. He spoke the Queen's English. Even that does not protect you for being a nigger. You can speak the Queen's English and have skin complexion that's pretty close to hers. And you're still just a nigger. And they'll be gossiping about how dark you and your offspring are. Poor Megan Markle. Let's see. He said the hair stood up on the back of my neck when I read a line from Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. We read this too. Live with your head in the lion's mouth. That was granddad. That is the beginning of the book. Uh, my favorite book of all time. Uh, let's see. And then he lists a, a whole trough. Uh, some of these we have read. Uh, in the Cows Book Club, some of these we perhaps should read in the future. Uh, let's see. I, I thought it was so funny. He said that they were at a rally in L.A. listening to students give 
Buck Governor Reagan speeches. And I thought that is so funny. Some of those very whites, given those speeches, turned around and voted for him to be president. Like 15 years, like that is how goofy the system, well, I won't say goofy, but that is how deceptive white people can be, uh, that they can come out today and have no shirt on and smoke a joint with you and down with the establishment, Black Lives Matter and all the rest of it. And then you wait five years and like, you know, that Trump 2024 doesn't sound so bad. I'm going to switch, put my Black Lives Matter sound, get me a MAGA hat again. Like they do this sort of thing all the time. And it is for sure some of those, all that flower power and students for democratic society, some of those very people turned around it. Reagan for matter of fact I'm gonna vote for him two times he didn't even get he did what Trump couldn't even do I'm gonna get the full two terms uh let's see and is revered today even let's see counter punch counter violence Mr. Fuller talks about that the distinguishing between the two uh let's see thought of Khalif Browder three years greater confinement for a backpack that maybe he didn't even steal it definitely changes you black mental health for sure uh let's see yeah no name calling no name calling so glad that was mentioned and they're not I'll just say this they're not going to be any secrets uh, in the system of racism white supremacy now they tell you about all the infiltration that was going on and snitches and rats it'll be a lot more of that that'll come up in the second audio segment this is way before Twitter and drones and iPhone 11 and all the rest like white people have much more sophisticated gadgets now than they did back then much less Alexa and all the rest of it. So, I mean, there are not going to be any secrets uh, in the system of white supremacy. See the tap. I mean, just we go to the funeral and smack people around. Give me the guest sign. In. I'm going to take pictures of that. Put that in my phone. Take pictures of who's here. Come get a picture. The like, total disrespect traumatize the people again. Like that's what gangsters do do we come burst in your apartment at four in the morning when you're naked we come in to the funeral and track mud all over and knock the flowers down at the casket as we're taking our photographs that's what gangsters do uh let's see with that we will get to the second audio segment yeah if you have additional thoughts or comments uh, just make a note. Uh, we'll have ample time for folks uh, to share and some of the folks uh, who wrote in as well. Uh, so we are picking up the chapter. Oh, did I miss it? There we go. Deep seated hatred. I think someone already mentioned anti-blackness, deep seated hatred context of white supremacy. Again, this is Jack Olson last man standing. The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Pratt, audio segment number two. Chapter six, Deep-Seated Hatred. In April 1969, three months after the deadly shootout in UCLA's Campbell Hall, Eldridge Cleaver's handsome wife Kathleen phoned and asked Pratt to fly to Oakland for an important meeting. 
There he was informed that Bunchy Carter had left a taped message naming him as his successor in Southern California. Geronimo demurred at the top of his lungs. I was so mad, I said. I can't explain it to y'all, but I don't want the job. I'm not from California. I don't even like California. They told me I was now on the Central Committee and the first cadre, the highest decision-making body. They made me Deputy Minister of Defense of the whole damn BPP and told me to take command. Some of my Panther friends were waiting for me when I got back to L.A. and they said, Brother, if you split for Louisiana, we're jumping your ass right here. Long John Washington said, You want to duke it out with the six of us? I got in touch with the elders in Morgan City and they said they needed military guys more than ever. They told me to use my own judgment. I decided to stay in L.A. for a month or two, at least till the Panthers could find somebody else to take over. Next thing I knew, I heard that Julio Butler's nose was out of joint. He expected to seed Bunchy. Julio and me, we never got along. He was an old guy, about 40, a high yellow with big lips, chunky body, greasy hair. He thought of himself as a sharp dresser, but his clothes always looked a size too small. He had a smug, snooty, snotty expression, superior, condescending. My brother Charlie took one look at him and said, That guy's a snitch. I should have thrown Julio's ass out of the party right then and there. Charlie was seldom wrong about things like that. Whatever the dude was, he was a problem. But who could have guessed how big? Julius Carl Butler, also known as Julio, Mama and Mother, was an ex-Marine sergeant, former Los Angeles County Deputy Sheriff, and nominal head of BPP Party Security in Los Angeles. Most of his official activities took place in his own fief on the west side of Los Angeles, a largely white section where Panther presence was weak. Butler was an unlikely racial activist, a strong-armed man who liked to refer to himself as the mayor of Adams Boulevard. He retired as a deputy in 1960, joined the Panthers in 1968, and now ran a hairdressing business in the West Adams Crenshaw neighborhood. His business card advertised Mr. Julio, cosmetologist and microtrichologist, scientific hair care and microanalysis with all phases of cosmetology. Cofers la dames. With his goatee, heavy brows, full lips, and gleaming waxy hair, the ex-deputy had something of the look of a Harlem band leader in a 1930s movie. Word continued to trickle into Panther headquarters about Butler's angry reaction to Pratt's elevation to Southern California leader. As an investigator reported later, it didn't help matters that Pratt was 21 years old, 15 years younger than Butler, and new to the organization 
and was a complete outsider who was from rural Louisiana, not urban Los Angeles, and had no established track record within the party in any area of operations. Butler decided to run his own operation from the west side and defied any authority coming from Pratt and his inner circle of lieutenants. Butler felt that Pratt was incompetent and totally unqualified to lead. Butler considered his people to be far better qualified and trained to do the work of BPP. Pratt and Butler clashed time and again. Geronimo had to deal with the Butler problem shortly after his return from the April meeting in Oakland. Julio accused a kid named Bobby of gutlessness. He ordered Bobby to go out and find a dog or cat, bring it back, and cut its throat. The brother was only 16, 17 years old, and when he couldn't find the right animal, Julio knocked out his front teeth. We had a few words about that. Not long afterward, Pratt rushed to Butler's upstairs apartment in response to an emergency call from a mutual friend. Julio was pounding on one of our recruits, a high school kid named Ollie Taylor. Julio was always jacking people. The boy's eye was shut. His face was bloody and some of his teeth were knocked out. I looked over in the corner and saw his school books. Made me feel bad. I apologized and told him we'd pay his medical bills. Then I took Julio in the other room and said, Panthers don't do each other like that. I told him he was under house arrest and he wasn't security chief or a section leader anymore. He was drinking Bacardi rum. He said, you're making a big mistake, Pratt. Prodded by an uncle with police connections, the injured Ollie Taylor made a formal complaint to the authorities and Pratt Butler and three other Panthers found themselves charged with assault with a deadly weapon, kidnapping, and false imprisonment. Two days later, an old friend in Morgan City tipped Geronimo that FBI agents were asking about him in St. Mary Parish. Pratt and his colleagues viewed the arrest as more police harassment and vowed to fight to the end in court. But Julius Butler took a more relaxed approach. He told confidants that he intended to plead nolo contende to all four counts, serenely running the risk of a penitentiary sentence. A judge put him on three years probation and ordered him to pay a $200 fine and restitution. Geronimo and the other accused Panthers fought the charges and won. I looked at how it all went down, Geronimo recalled, and to me, it spelled R-A-T. I couldn't prove Julio was a police agent, but I was sure enough to make my move. He'd already ousted Butler as a section leader and chief of security. Now, with his new power as deputy minister of defense and leader of Southern California Panthers, he expelled the hairdresser from the party. Headquarters approved the ouster. When the expulsion was reported in the Black Panther, 
word came back that the enraged butler had sworn revenge. As investigator McCloskey reported later, this expulsion by the young upstart outsider Pratt humiliated him in front of his own men and the entire community where he lived his whole life. Some of Butler's former associates and squad members told me that Butler has an unnatural but deep-seated hatred for Mr. Pratt. The loathing was more than a personal conflict. No wonder he was enraged, the investor reported. As head of the L.A. Panthers, Julio would have been the most valuable police informer, the King Snitch. One Panther told me that Julius wanted to kill Pratt with his bare hands. Instead, he used a subtler weapon. Chapter 7 Jail Time for most of Geronimo Pratt's first full year as Southern California Panther leader, his time was spent raising bail or appearing in court for himself or others. On the night of April 12, 1969, his GTO was pulled over and searched again. He seldom drove the goat anymore. The deputy minister of defense was more likely to be seen in a blue Volkswagen or other cars borrowed from friends. This time, the police report said, officers observed a white coat lying in the front seat of the vehicle covering some objects. The officer picked up the coat and observed a brown paper bag with a metal pipe sticking out of the bag, and the end of the pipe was a six-inch fuse. This pipe appeared to be a homemade bomb found 12-inch metal pipe with caps on both ends and a 6-inch fuse extending out end of one and other bombs and blasting equipment, blasting caps, live ammo, instructions on how to make a homemade bomb in handwriting. Also, 45 caliber automatic, 38 revolver. Pratt described the report as pure fiction and explained that the highly visible GTO was the last car that any Panther would have used to haul contraband. After this latest stop, Geronimo was bemused by an offer of round-the-clock protection from a woman. I'd never had a bodyguard. When they named me to the Central Committee, Bobby Seal and David Hilliard offered me security. I told them, hey, I'm my own bodyguard. Then this cool-looking sister, 19 years old, big, rangy, waltzes into headquarters, says, How do you do, Mr. Pratt? I'm Sandra Lee. Call me Red. I'm your bodyguard. I says, Say what? I'm laughing. I told her, Hey, baby, I train bodyguards. She pulls up this denim skirt and shows me a 25 caliber automatic in her black panties. I'm breaking up. A pea shooter. She says, don't underestimate this weapon, Mr. G. It already put several cats to sleep. Sticks the barrel in my face, says, you're not so tough. I'll kill you.
She says, you jive son of a bitch. You think I won't do it? I laughed louder. She told me, the second time you laughed, that's when I decided I want this mother. Me, I just figured this chick is crazy and ushered her out. I asked around and found out she had a history. I mean, a history. Her mother sent her to good schools, gave her everything. She was number one in her high school class when she discovered her mama was a hoe. Red took it hard. She was gang raped at 13, became a hooker herself, went up to San Francisco, rejected her pimps, and became a stud broad, an independent who goes both ways. She was 16 by then, goes east, ends up as the madam for a guy in the Costra Nostra and begins shooting up heroin. At that time, the Panthers were rounding up drug dealers and pimps and trying to straighten them out. A couple of our people found Red in a gutter, no veins left, shooting up in her tongue. They dried her out and found out she was so smart she made them all feel stupid. The country boy from Atchafalaya Swamp Country was more surprised than anyone when the rehabilitated Sandra appeared at Panther headquarters to attend his night classes in guerrilla warfare and area defense. Soon she was visiting his bedroom and telling him to sleep in peace. Nobody gonna bother yo ass while Red's around. He returned from a trip to Chicago to find a marriage certificate hanging over his bedroom door. She said, now let me see you reject me as a bodyguard. We're legally married. Geronimo pretended that the license was valid. Everybody else thought I was married to her, so we acted like we were. In time, Sandra became one of the best-loved Panthers, a cliché whore with a heart of gold, and Pratt developed a genuine affection for the woman known as his wife. In the last months of 1969, the internecine warfare with the United Slaves organization seemed to subside. That fratricidal crap only lasted four or five months. Ron Karinga and us Panthers, we finally wised up and stopped fighting. We were pretty sure where the nasty letters and phone calls were coming from. We were stupid for a while, but we weren't going to be stupid forever. The Panthers could tell they were under steady surveillance from buildings on Central Avenue. Geronimo redoubled his efforts to fortify the headquarters, a rickety old brick and wood structure whose primary means of support was the buildings on either side. Every trooper has a horror of being overrun. When somebody tries to take your position, the first thing he does is lay down a barrage, open up holes in your defense, make you vulnerable. I wasn't going to let that happen. The cops had already shown what they would do. They fired shots into our national headquarters in Oakland. How were we supposed to react? Paint bullseyes on our ass? We had to defend ourselves. 
so we started using sandbags. Whenever our people were late for political education classes or didn't sell enough Panther papers or got caught with drugs, I made them dig tunnels in the basement and fill sandbags with the dirt. Now, if the situation got out of hand, we could use those tunnels to duck out of the line of fire. We stuffed sandbags in the panels behind our walls, below our ceilings, up under our roof. We put up tons of dirt. It was all defensive structure. No bullet was going to penetrate three-foot walls. On December 4, 1969, 15 months after Pratt's arrival in Los Angeles, word came from Chicago that plainclothes police armed with a floor plan provided by an FBI informer had kicked in the front door of a Panther apartment at 4.40 a.m. and killed Illinois leader Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. Four other Panthers and one policeman were wounded. Footnote 13 a federal grand jury inquiry confirmed that all victims, including the wounded officer, had been hit by police gunfire. End of footnote. The 21-year-old Hampton had been shot in the head at point-blank range. One of the weapons used by police was the famous Tommy gun, long a part of Chicago's tradition of violence. You're next. Geronimo was warned in an anonymous call. You and your hoe. On advice from Panther headquarters in Oakland, Pratt and Sandra began sleeping in safe houses. Me and Red, we're not afraid of dying, he told Long John Washington and Blue Lewis. But we're not gonna die like Fred and Mark. We're not gonna die like dogs. Chapter 8 Incoming In the stillness of pre-dawn on December 8, 1969, four days after the deadly Chicago raid, 39 L.A. policemen and FBI agents in bulletproof vests, black jumpsuits, black boots, and black baseball caps quietly took positions around Panther headquarters at 41st and Central. Another three dozen officers waited around the corner. In the police version of the raid, four cops with a battering ram were met with a fusillade of gunfire as they tried to break down the steel-plated front door. Three fell, one critically wounded. All casualties recovered, including the critically injured Sergeant Edward C. Williams, who had been hit in the chest, groin, and finger. Inside the building, the occupants awoke to a warning from Melvin Cotton Smith, who explained later that he just happened to be looking out a front window. Some of the Panthers claimed later that Smith shouted, The pigs are coming in! and that he grabbed a rifle and began firing from a fortified upper window. In the ensuing gunfight, 5,000 police rounds struck the brown brick walls of the building, most of them burrowing harmlessly into Pratt's sandbags. 
tear gas canisters fired from grenade launchers bounced off heavy metal grills and clanked back on the street. Frustrated commanders ordered a dynamite charge dropped from a helicopter. It rearranged some sandbags but caused no damage. Four hours into the mini-war, 200 officers were on the scene firing assault weapons from squad cars, armored cars, dark blue trucks, and olive drab personnel carrier borrowed from the National Guard. Fire trucks, their low-throated engines idling, waited at nearby intersections. Reporters and cameramen huddled behind sawhorses at the edges of the battle zone and were joined by mobs of curious neighbors coughing in the blue haze. A dog loped onto the battleground, yelped, and ran off. Two and a half blocks from the epicenter of the violence, a patrolman felt a tug and found his pea jacket collar holed by a stray round. At 9.45 a.m., five hours after the opening shots, police glimpsed a flash of white in a window and held their fire. A few minutes later, a 19-year-old panther named Rene Moore staggered out the front door waving a white flag. Her yellow dress was ripped, revealing a bra caked with dirt. She was followed by eleven disheveled panthers with their hands on their heads. Walk down the sidewalk, a policeman with a bullhorn ordered. One at a time. Moore yelled to reporters, We gave up because it's not the right time. We'll fight again when the odds are more in our favor. She was cut and bruised, but not seriously hurt. Roland Freeman had been shot in both arms, Tommy Williams in both thighs, Wayne Farr in the chest, arm, and wrist. As Farr staggered to the street under the sign, Feed Hungry Children, Free Breakfast, he called out, Tell mother I love her. Tell Sharon I love her. Six Panthers had been wounded. In a house a mile away in the heart of the South Central area just off Broadway, Geronimo Pratt and Sandra Red Lee were asleep in a rear bedroom when police broke through the door. In the first LAPD version of the incident, Officers identified themselves, told defendant not to move. Defendant made movement toward floor under bed. At this time, a sergeant fired a shotgun over defendant's head. Defendant then froze in his position and was taken into custody and handcuffed. According to the police report, a loaded 357 Magnum was found under the bed. They handcuffed us and marched us down the street naked, Pratt said later. We looked like slaves on a gangplank. He was charged with conspiracy to commit the assault and murder of a police officer. Sandra protested her innocence, but while she was being held on suspicion, police ransacked their apartment and turned up an old photograph of her posing with a submachine gun. 
based on the picture, she was charged with possession of an illegal weapon. 5,000 African-American citizens mounted the steps of City Hall to hear Panther spokesman denounce the police raiders as fascists who fired on a house full of men and women on the slimmest of pretexts and for the oldest of reasons, racial hatred. Later, the group joined other demonstrators at the Hall of Justice where speakers with bullhorns charged that police chief Edward D. Davis had assumed dictatorial powers in his zeal to drive the Panthers from town. A black politician, State Senator Mervyn Dimley, called the raid part of a national plan for police repression. Packs of students roamed in and out of the area, throwing rocks and bottles at squad cars and raising their fists in the black power salute. Police snipers were positioned atop four divisional stations and the police administration building, but fired no shots. In the next few days, so many demonstrations were held in the South Central and Watts ghettos that a deputy police chief, perhaps remembering the build-up to the Burn Baby Burn riots of 1965, complained publicly, We're being whipped by a propaganda warfare. At a press conference, acting police chief Daryl Gates explained that the raiding party had anticipated felonious resistance because of a Panther doctrine that unwarranted entry would be met with armed resistance. Governor Ronald Reagan called the raid a tragic and deplorable thing, but it is clear that the Black Panthers have made their policy one of violence and outright revolution. According to Reagan, the biggest victims of the BPP were the overwhelming majority of the black community. Twenty Panthers from three locations appeared before a municipal court judge in their jailhouse sandals and orange jumpsuits to face charges including conspiracy to possess illegal explosives, assault, and attempted murder. The judge proclaimed the Panther resistance armed anarchy after a prosecutor charged that the BPP stood for revolution and the murder of lawmen backing up his claims with 106 exhibits including 28 weapons taken in the raids. The judge frowned as he perused the bloodthirsty Panther literature party propaganda had always been heavy on bluff and bombast. Even if we ignore the material in the documents, the judge said, the condition of the premises and the bombs and armament would lead anyone, even a casual visitor, to believe illegal activities were planned. They didn't have to stay there. They were under no misapprehension about what was going on there they were acting in concert with party discipline. Panther lawyers argued that the defensive fortifications were justified by recent history, including the killings in Chicago and police raids in other cities. They called the search warrants illegal and an excuse to raid the building and characterized the arrests as political persecution and part of a conspiracy to destroy the party. 
Attorney Charles Gary called for an investigation by Congress and said he would bring the matter to the attention of the United Nations. The judge ordered the defendants bound over for trial. In the days following the shootout, the Black Panther Party found itself vigorously defended by mainstream African Americans for one of the few times in its three-year history. The Congress for Racial Equality demanded an investigation of the death of 28 Black Panther members killed in clashes with the police since January 1968. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference complained of a calculated design of genocide. The Urban League and NAACP joined in the protests. Julian Bond, a charismatic black legislator in Georgia, charged that the Black Panthers are being decimated by political assassination arranged by the federal police apparatus. The New York Times took up the theme by referring to a growing concern that the federal administration has had a hand in the recent wave of raids, arrests, and shootouts. The newspaper blamed President Richard Nixon's administration for creating a climate of opinion producing a virtual open season on the Panthers. Newsweek asked, is there some sort of government conspiracy afoot to exterminate the Black Panthers? Time referred to a lethal undeclared war. Even the understated Christian Science Monitor mentioned a growing suspicion that something more than isolated local police action was involved. Eventually, all would be proved correct. Few such protests were heard in California, where the ultra-conservative Los Angeles Times echoed J. Edgar Hoover's pronouncement that the Panthers were the biggest threat to America's peace and security. On June 21, 1970, under a five-column headline on the front page, the Times claimed that the Black Panthers and police are fighting a battle in south-central Los Angeles that has shadows of an international communist movement. The article warned that the Panthers have trained at least 100 young men and women in guerrilla warfare, including sabotage, handling machine guns, hand grenades, and other weapons. It quoted an anonymous woman, For a long time, I thought the Panthers were right in what they said, but I just wasn't willing to pick up a gun and shoot somebody or die. An unidentified police officer claimed that he'd been approached by a boy about four or five years old who spoke in unprintable, obscene language imitative of the Panthers. The inflammatory article gave particular attention to the 22-year-old South California Panther leader. Geronimo is what many feared would be a disastrous byproduct of the Vietnam War. A black man trained as a soldier who returned home to turn his skills against the establishment. Pratt, a paratrooper, says he was trained as a guerrilla fighter and an assassin and at one time taught Green Berets. 
In Vietnam, he was dropped behind enemy lines to kill village chiefs cooperating with the Viet Cong, he said. According to the Times, the trained assassin and his Black Panther Party hoped to immobilize the police by making them afraid to enter the ghetto to make South Central Los Angeles a liberated territory. Overall, Panther's strategy, according to the newspaper's blind sources, was to create several pockets of liberated territories across the country and then form an alliance with the Chinese, North Vietnamese, North Koreans, Africans, and other non-white people for mutual protection. Eldridge Cleaver is said to be negotiating for that treaty with foreign countries. Footnote 15 Pratt hadn't been interviewed by the Times or any other newspaper. Later, it was revealed that the provocative information originated with an LAPD public information officer. End of footnote Locked in the bowels of the overcrowded Los Angeles County Jail, the perplexed Pratt and his fellow militants awaited courtroom proceedings in which they would eventually be acquitted of all but a few charges. Their lawyers filed a $10 million lawsuit alleging that in a single year the LAPD had engaged in 14 assaults against the Panthers, 10 beatings, 56 false arrests, 19 stop-and-frisk traffic stops, 18 humiliating treatments, 21 search-and-seizure missions without cause, 9 incidents of mistreatment of Panther prisoners, and 9 incidents of destruction or theft of property. From their first hours inside the antiquated jail, the Panthers butted heads with guards and administrators who seemed to Geronimo to be as racially biased as any member of the Ku Klux Klan. Some of the deputies taunted the prisoners and tried to provoke fights. Panthers, one of them said behind the safety of heavy wire grill. You look more like pussies to me. Two guards strutted up and down the cell block, loudly repeating, What kind of things live in cages? Animals in a zoo. They must be animals, and we must be zookeepers. A black inmate told Pratt, These fucking deputies figure if we fight with each other, we're too busy to fight with the staff. Geronimo watched as three guards dragged a gray-haired African-American along the corridor and beat him with truncheons and saps. In the corner of a recreation room, Pratt saw two inmates double-team a puny young black who was shaking from drug withdrawal. A tittering guard called out from the other side of the screen. Stick him good, man! Geronimo turned away as one of the attackers started to unbutton his pants. In his mind's eye, he saw Vietnam again. Children sodomized in their cots women forced to their knees, husbands and fathers pistol-whipped when they dared to object. 
That night he passed word to his panther colleagues. The damn guards are acting like slave masters. We got to do something. When word went out that Pratt planned a reprisal, deputies struck first by claiming that he tried to stab one of them with a pencil. Geronimo represented himself in court and was acquitted of a felony charge of assault. Guards began patrolling the cell blocks in threes, then fours. Whenever a deputy abused an older or weaker prisoner, Pratt or another panther lodged complaints, and if no charges resulted, they tried to mete out their own punishment. The most vicious deputies were attacked with fists and homemade weapons. The jailers responded by cramming the dissidents into a holding tank that was so crowded they had to stand. A group of desperate young prisoners planned a mass escape and Geronimo felt sympathetic. Their lives were definitely in danger. They were going to go out through a window, use a rope and pulleys to reach a truck across the city street and make their way to the parking lot. There was 17 of them, young panthers, my panthers. They had mothers and fathers, wives, kids. An informer tipped a deputy. At two in the morning, the sheriff of L.A. County, Peter Pitches, entered the cell block with 50 deputies with gas masks and guns. We were all in our box trying to sleep when the lights came on. Deputies were lined up every two or three feet along the tier. They threw me in Sirhan Sirhan's old cell in the hole to separate me from the rest of my panthers. At least I had my own toilet then. Sirhan had a little stove for preparing his food because everybody wanted to kill him for assassinating Bobby Kennedy and the guards had to keep him isolated. It was isolated all right. I had two weeks of it, no books, TV, magazines. On February 6, 1970, two months after the police raid on Panther headquarters, jailers entered a holding tank where Pratt and four others awaited transport to court and began laying about with batons and blackjacks. Geronimo led the counterattack. The guards made a tactical mistake. There were six of them, and they got in each other's way. Some of them ended up clubbing each other. We whipped their ass in hand-to-hand -hand combat, knocked one cold, broke some arms and legs. I wasn't ashamed or sorry. It was a setup, an ambush. We defended ourselves. After the fracas, the guards refocused their anger on the Black Panther leader. 24 hours a day, they'd come into my cell and jump me. When I fought back, they filed assault charges. Some of those times, I might have been beat to death, except that the Vietnam bets on the staff intervened. They knew I'd been a soldier, so they tried to cut me a little slack. After three or four weeks of this, an undersheriff came in and asked, if we could negotiate. He said, if you back off, we'll back off. I said, why run your mouth? Just do it. After that, 
things improved. I thought about a Frederick Douglass quote I got from Bunchy. Power concedes nothing without a struggle. At San Quentin, years later, a gnarled old prisoner hugged Geronimo and said, Thanks for what you boys did at the L.A. jail. Everything changed after that. First time a white guard ever called me Mr. I wasn't used to all that respect. Context of white supremacy. Uh, that's what we will conclude for this week. Uh, we'll pick up next week. We'll be on on the road. That's the chapter for next week on the road. Uh, the number again is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pounds. Press star six one if you would like to participate. See if you have any other notes. The email until justice at gmail dot com until justice at gmail dot com. Uh, our investor writes in. Uh, this is the chapter deep seated hatred. Uh, he ordered Bobby to go out and find a dog or cat and bring it back to cut its throat. Julio was pounding on one of our recruits. It was a high school kid named Ollie Taylor. Julio was always jacking people. Reminds me of the violent hazing that occurs in black fraternities. (sighs) Stop harming, mistreating other non-white people. Talk about that all the time. That's right up there with no name calling. Stop being discourteous, mistreating other non-white people. Dr. Welsing, Mr. Fuller, many others would co-sign on that one big time. Uh, jail time the fratricidal crap lasted four or five months Ron Karinga and us Panthers finally wised up and stopped fighting we were pretty sure where the nasty letters and phone calls were coming from unfortunately the realization came too late minimize conflict with other non-white people very important incoming they handcuffed us and marched us through the street naked Pratt said later it's not enough to just arrest you. You must torment and abuse. So many cows programs have discussed the use of sadistic, sexualized violence against black victims. The latest being at the hands of persons unknown. Philip Dre right at the uh, beginning of the year. But yeah, lots of and lots of even those incidents where Black Panther Party members. I think it was uh, when little Bobby Hutton was killed. Uh, in 1968, right after the assassination of Dr. King, uh, where uh, Eldridge Cleaver said, hey, we have to go out with no clothes on and that way we'll live. And, and little Bobby Hutton took his shirt off and everything. But he's like 16. He didn't want to take off, you know, go out totally nude. So he kept his uh, pants on and they shot and killed him uh, when he went out. But, yeah, the, the the parading of black bodies, nude black bodies, that is a long held tradition in the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh delectable Negro. Uh, let's see. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, if we have missed you totally and you have commentary to share, uh, line should be open. Uh, star six one if you have thoughts, observations, and or questions. Folks with a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, yes. I heard all of you. Let's see. We'll get Henry in Chicago first this time. All right. Um, on page 53, 
I was wondering why the author of called Elders Cleaver's wife Kathleen handsome. I thought that was uh interesting, the descriptor of her being handsome. Um I was also wondering on page fifty four why uh Julio was called Mama or Mother. I was uh I don't know, maybe you know, I was thinking maybe sexual confusion, you know, with a hairdresser, but I you know, I was you know, just some questions I wanna throw out there if anybody has any uh <laughs> any answers to that. Um when they're talking about Hampton uh going into the Fred Hampton assassination and him being uh shot at point blank range and you know the thing is is that uh, uh one of the things that we've always known in Chicago and uh if people have heard the testimony of Deborah Johnson who was uh with uh Fred Hampton when he was shot that uh after the raid uh Fred Hampton is actually still alive and then two cops went into the room and uh she heard one of them said is he uh, he's still alive and then after that she heard two gunshots and one of the cops said that you know he's good and dead now so that was uh, that was the case with Fred Hampton. So he actually, you know, according to them, survived the rape. But then when they found out he was still alive, they finished the <laughs> job. Um, and uh, on page sixty-five, when they were talking about uh, the the Times article, that in the footnote said that you know Geronimo Pratt was never interviewed by the Times. I was wondering why the author still had this in the book. Because I know when they were describing Geronimo Pratt as, you know, uh, uh, he was a paratrooper who trained guerrilla fighters and an assassin at one time and, and trained Green Berets. And, you know, it was, it was making him look like the Black Rambo or something. And <laughs> I don't know if we've we read any of that. I mean, he picked up some skills, but I didn't realize he was the Black Rambo, but... I'm glad the footnote had said that, you know, he was never interviewed by the Times and the information originated, you know, with the L.A., uh, with an LAPD public information officer. So, but I was kind of curious why the authors, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't know why he kept that in the book, but, um, and uh, that is all I have on me in my life. Much obliged, uh, Henry, in Chicago. Uh, we'll see if folks have any thoughts uh, on the nicknames for Julio Butler, Mama, Mother, and the adjective used for Kathleen Cleaver being handsome. Uh, folks have any thoughts about that or other observations? Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. Uh, yes, can I be heard? Retired firefighter? Yes, sir. Yes, I believe uh, Mr. Butler is going to be uh, mentioned very significantly in the future. Uh, The uh, writings kind of like was hinting hinting on that. Uh, As we all know by now, Mr. Ron Karinga was the founder of uh, 
the, the, the quote-unquote celebration called Kwanzaa. Uh, the uh, suspicions thereof between the, the two organizations lasted decades after uh, the uh, the uh, first encounters with uh, uh, the group. Matter of fact, I was surprised that he didn't mention about the squabble that they had over the protection of Miss Betty Shabazz when she uh, visited uh, California uh, uh, as far as an escort. She needed an escort from the airport to uh, a meeting that was supposed to take place. And uh, the two organizations were squabbling with each other then. Uh, and that was early in the, uh, in the uh, uh, relationship. Uh, so, it, I mean, when the president of the United States <laughs> uh, personally has you, on, uh, has you on his list of uh, annihilation, uh, one can just uh, have an understanding of the amount of of pressure and terror that was involved as a young person being in an organization called the Black Panther Party. Uh, I have here also uh, what else do I have here? December 8th, 1969, uh, as if if one doesn't know it by now, uh, that was the beginning of uh, special weapons and tactics uh, 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 initiatives with uh, large city police departments. Uh, The shootout that took place uh, in uh, Los Angeles, California, on 41st and Central Avenue, uh, there is several uh, uh, documentaries that you can you can look at on YouTube uh, depicting that incident. Uh, Mr. Pratt was certainly significant with the uh, means of uh, his military experience on on not only fortifying the building, which saved lives, also tunnels to be able to uh, lower oneself uh, from the uh, means of uh, bullets, bullets, automatic fire, ricocheting around in a place and you're kind of like underground, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, He was instrumental in saving uh, lives from that standpoint. Uh, And uh, let me see what else I have here. That's about all I can think of right now. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter uh, in Florida. Uh, Other folks who dialed in, you have commentary to share. Proceed.
get their last uh, thoughts and such together. Let's see, get in some of my notes. Folks are waiting. Uh, Thomas in New York. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to the callers. I did catch the um, yeah, Jane, what's her name, Jane Seifert from the White Dog book. I caught a reference to her. Um, and they said that she used the name Aretha to write under or something, or to get her checks collected under. Did they mention that in the White Dog book, Gus? I don't remember that pseudonym for her. Um, yeah, I don't yeah, recall me neither. That. Interesting. Um, yeah, I'm not a fan of this era of black history. <laughs> Honestly, um, they would have been justified in charge them all with insanity. <laughs> um, man, they were going to the U.S. military to be trained in techniques to use against white people, a.k.a. the U.S. government, which is the U.S. military. Man, good luck. Um, that tactic has not changed our situation since we fought way back in the Revolutionary War. Uh, I, don't, I would not be putting my life at risk to be learning some tactics. Um, they're meeting with Chinese, they plan on meeting with Chinese, North Koreans, Africans, and other non-whites for protection. People who can't protect themselves from white people don't have much to gain in trying to help protect us. Having headquarters and positions of leadership, just not logical. Police killing their members, killing their leaders from L.A. to Chicago, locking up members for random charges, have surveillance teams around them, trailing them, harassing members for no reason, putting them in jail, affecting women and children. Sometimes you got to realize that you just lost. Admit, uh, the way you're handling the problem is not going to work. Switch up what you're doing. It just, man, it seems like they had every clue that this was not going to end well for them. Um, the what, Southern racists were not as bad as the racists in the cities. Uh, I've heard that in several books um, that we've done on the book show and other things that I've read on my own. And um, I think um, the South, you have white racists. And in the cities, you know, particularly Los Angeles, you, know, you get Mark Berman. You know, Chicago, L.A., Philly, New York, you know, you get those honorary whites, those whites that haven't been off the boat but for one generation, and they're trying to prove their whiteness, and they're just a little bit nasty, I think. I'll mute my mind. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Uh, Mr. Fuller uh, does recommend, I agree, that we not use the term honorary white. Uh, in fact, I would submit that is name calling uh, unless you've heard someone say I am an honorary white that is a title that they did not take on or ask to be called that would be name calling too uh, let's see other folks uh, who we have not heard from at all uh, if you have commentary proceed Got everybody, all the folks who dialed in. I'll make sure to read my comments. Let's see. I don't to Henry in Chicago. 
uh, that great catch with the adjective uh, or adjective for El- uh, Kathleen Cleaver, Eldridge Cleaver's uh, wife. Uh, that is odd. You generally do not hear females described as handsome. It's generally reserved for uh, males unless I'm in error. Um, kind of a, a sex specific uh, adjective, but yes, handsome to describe Kathleen Cleaver. Uh, and then uh, Julius Carl Butler, also known as Julio, Mama, and Mother. That is, uh, I don't know. I can't really blame the author of it. I mean, unless he's lying about this, if this is correct, if, you know, these are aliases that he goes by. And I mean, he, I think Henry in Chicago did say, I guess, you know, he does spend some time uh, as a hairdresser or what have you. I don't know if there's, or I guess some people might say that there is some gender confusion uh, in the whole hair business salon industry uh that there might be some gender confusion that sort of thing it's not that is not exactly the domain of manly men if you will but mama and mother as aliases for a black male hmm, who would then later join the black panther party that is curious to say the least um lots of examples or at least a few of uh black teens children uh, being beaten uh, as it were by mama mother Julio Butler um, man any uh, sort of uh, groups and this is not uh, isolated to the Black Panther Party they, I think uh, one of our investors who wrote in was saying oh man this reminds me of some of the reports about the black fraternities and sororities where they beat on each other and all that and call it uh, initiation as it were the rites of passage hazing and all the rest of it uh, that all of that, I mean, all of that one reflects the system that we are in justifying beating, particularly black people, non-white people always got to find a reason uh, to beat on and mistreat someone. Uh, all of that should be done away with. There's no reason. There's no uh, justification uh, to be beating on people and mistreating people, hazing them. You didn't get this information right. We need to discipline you. So you need to be beaten a few times. Like all of that is totally correct and should be thought of understood as, as that's just the system of white supremacy. That's how we've been trained to, to think about almost everything. Black people are in need of a good whipping and I need to be the one to do the whipping. Um, as I said, uh, Mr. Pratt, he gets this information to come back and try to help out black people. He talks about these raids where they've got uh, sandbags and things in place to, to try to secure the facility as best they can, which probably did save some lives. However, white people are the masters of death and destruction and mayhem. So they start saying, oh, man, uh, you know, we're, we're not getting the results that we want. They go and get a helicopter and drop dynamite on the roof. Now we've heard that before too. We've done lots of reports on the move organization and uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, lots of examples uh, of white people going to get a helicopter to bomb black people. That should be something to think about right there. Like my goodness, like, uh, wow. Do we have a helicopter? What sort of anti-helicopter defenses and things do we have if we don't have all that then wow we need to really think because it's obvious white people will bring any and everything to bear to control their negras 
Uh, let's see. I thought it was interesting. So when Olson, when he goes to describe this raid on Geronimo Pratt and Sandra Red Lee, uh, he says in the first LAPD version of the incident, officers identified themselves, told defendant not to move. And this is in quotes like he's reading from the report. Uh, I just that is a, a curious way of phrasing it. It almost sounds like later versions didn't sound the same. Like, did they change their story of these events? Like in later versions, did he not move for the gun? Did he have the gun in his hand? So we had to justify like, or did they give a consistent story the first time, the third time, the fifth time, all the way through? Did they say the same thing? Um, let's see. In this piece from the LA times, which I think Henry in Chicago pointed out, like, Hmm, why would he include this piece where it talks about Geronimo Platt, Pratt like he's the black Rambo, uh, like he one black dude by himself has been trained and can elite killer and go in and with a toothpick and, and mow down a hundred white people. Why would the LA Times include such a piece if it's a lie? Um, why would he include that? Uh in the piece, I guess uh I don't know. I guess we'll start there. I don't know. Mr. Olson's dead. Um I guess if you read the footnotes, then you get a fuller appreciation for the scale of the attack against Geronimo Pratt, where they can just make up things out of, you know, whole cloth. They can just make up complete lies and have that printed, not in some low level newspaper that no one's going to read, but the L.A. Times, one of the most powerful uh, newspaper publications in the world uh, and have it unquestioned and it might not come out for years later that, oh, this is a total lie. This is not something. And this is the type of thing that people might remember when these murders come up later. This is the type of thing that may even be brought up in terms of the type of character of the person that we're talking about, that this is black Rambo. You know, he's capable of this type of thing, going out and slaying two white people, probably with his bare hands and a piece of dental floss, you know? So I guess I said, on one hand, if you read the footnotes, it's, oh, wow, you get an appreciation for the scale. On the other hand, you know, you don't read the footnotes. Maybe you, <laughs> maybe you come through thinking, wow, that Pratt is a Geronimo. I mean, uh, he's, you know, the black Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, wow, he went through there and killed all the, he was a trained sniper and Chris Kyle, you know, type of, if you don't read careful enough, got to read the footnotes, got to read the footnotes. Um, and there are many of them in the book as we continue. Uh, let's see. He's talking about being in greater confinement. He says Geronimo turned away from uh, one of the attackers, uh, turned away as one of the attackers started to unbutton his pants. In his mind's eye, he saw Vietnam again. Children sodomized in their cots, women forced to their knees. Pause right there. Interracial con game. Anti-Asian violence. And in fact, pause right there. Isn't this week the documentary uh, Woody Allen, Mia Farrow? I said, that's anti-Asian violence right there. You go and say, oh, we'll grab some of these poor, displaced little Asian people. You know, they don't have any parents. We'll go and get some of them and bring them here and then groom them so we can sexually abuse them. Yes, yes. Woody says, I love to help the little children. I just love the little brown children. Yes. Anti-Asian 
violence. But so all this sodomizing of children, uh, that's how we got to Woody Allen and all sodomizing children in their cots, women forced to their knees, husbands and fathers pistol whipped when they dared to object. Man, where have they been able to practice that before? I wonder, you think that's the first time they did that? We got over here to Vietnam. We're going to put down these Vietnams, these slopes and chinks and say, yes, we can rape dark people and smack around their husbands and brothers and fathers if they want to say something about it and make them watch. Hmm. White people just do the same thing. White people who practice racism, white supremacy all over the known universe. It just comes back to the same behaviors. Didn't we hear that in Delectable Negro? Didn't we hear that in The Half Has Never Been Told? You just hear the same stories all over, even continent of Africa, the same stories repeated over and over again. All kinds of sexual debauchery, probably raping uh, males too, same thing. They leave that out, but the sexual perversions got to rape these dark people. And then bring that same behavior back out here in the prisons. Uh, where he has, and he says that the guards are rooting this on. So you see this happen in the prisons. They're going to beat down, got black people beating down other black people. Then we're going to rape him and sodomize him. Like, yeah. Uh, And then the guards are yelling on, acting like slave masters, he said. And this is what motivated him to have to do something. Don't we hear the same thing? They have the gladiator groups in prisons and what have you and making them rape one another. We have the report in North Carolina where the guards were putting hot sauce on the inmates genitals. Uh, we had the report from Texas tough some years back. Now that was in the 1930s. Uh, they were talking about the white guard. He would go around and anally rape the black male prisoners. And then he would pull out his penis and ask them if they wanted to sniff the bat. That's a direct quote from Robert Perkinson's, Uh, Texas tough about prisons in America, U.S. specifically, but this is the history of racism, white supremacy. And then they pass this behavior off onto the victims, have them continue it out, all the rapes and things. We talked about that in Acres of Skin, uh, sentenced to science, where he talked about uh, the guards are allowing, encouraging this behavior. I think Pratt had already talked about in the book where You all fighting each other makes it easier for us to control you. All of that, again, going back to the same thing, no name calling and minimizing being in conflict with other black people. Main things. These are key elements uh, of, in my opinion, stopping the system of white supremacy. Racism is no accident. You continue to see things like this popping up over and over again, seeing how name calling leads to Bunchy Carter being dead, black people being dead frequently and or even if it doesn't get that far conflict with other non-white people which is a massive waste of time and energy and non-white people harming and being discourteous with each other, racists skillfully, efficiently use that to maintain the system of racism when you have a small number of people controlling a uh, majority population large numbers of people have to keep those folks in conflict with and not focused on the problem. Racists do that skillfully. That's big themes from the book this week. Uh, Let's see any folks that we missed commentary that they want to make sure they get in before we wrap things up. Uh, Can I, uh, Say something else? 
retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, I, I noticed uh, some uh, uh, inmates being elevated, uh, kind of, kind of like to a celebrity level with uh, Sirhan Sirhan. Somebody was bitching about that they uh, spent some time in Sirhan Sirhan's cell. Uh, <laughs> the uh, reportedly killer of uh, Senator uh, Robert Kennedy. Uh, yeah, I, I, I noticed that in the, the last reading. Uh, also, there, there, there were some rumors uh, additional to uh, what took place in the killings of uh, Al Prentice, uh, 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 Carter, and uh, I, can't, I keep forgetting the, uh, the other guy's name. Uh, what was his name? The, uh, the other uh, victim. Yes, uh, John Huggins, that uh, that the uh, the uh, female uh, uh, head of the Black Panther Party after uh, after uh, 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 dang. Uh, the female uh, who became uh, the head of the Black Panther Party. She wasn't at, at the head of the Black Panther Party at that time, but. Uh, Prior to that, she was at the uh, that particular meeting and something about uh, fighting over her between uh, some person that was involved with uh, the United Slaves and uh, uh, the Black Panther Party. An argument started off of that, and uh, in turn, uh, it resulted. It, it assisted in resulting into the death of uh, uh, the two victims. Uh, all kinds of all kinds of stories. And then again, that may be a part of Coin Temporal also to uh, bring up such rumors uh, as that. But that's something that I've read uh, also connected with the uh, the two uh, murders. Yep, they uh, lots of rumors. That's why I said minimizing conflict is very important. Uh, Mr. Pratt talked about that in the section of the book this week. Like they would send uh, letters and saying like, Oh man, they, they had your wife's panties all up in the, the U S uh, headquarters. They would go tell Ron Karina, like, Oh man, you know, your girl, I saw her stepping out with Geronimo Pratt and you'd like that sort of thing. And anything just to have them in conflict with one another and squabbling with one another. Uh, that's why we talk about not, not gossiping and all of that, just being very focused uh, about what our time and energy uh, is focused on and, and what our conversation is about. We're just not sitting around talking about other non-white people and how they're responding to the system of racism and really make working as best we can to minimize conflict with other uh, non-white people. Like those are critical components uh, of solving this problem thus far we have not been up to the task uh in that respect um hopefully we'll get some of that detail and again like i said i think this book is lengthy like we got ways to go but i think some of this is going to come out in the book as more of this information comes out as he's in prison and finding out the full scale of of Quintel pro and i think QEP Newton and him will end up making back up in prison through all this. So uh, will be a very interesting narrative. I'll try and share some of the documentaries as we go, because there's lots of uh, archival footage and other books. If you know, folks want to uh, check out some of this uh, information it is pretty well uh, documented. If you want to 
dig deeper. And I would certainly, if we, if we have any folks, if you have not like done like a serious uh, study of Pro, there are lots of books uh, on the, there's uh, books written on the break-in uh, in terms of the files and what they got, attacking black bookstores. There's lots of details on like all the specifics, uh, or not all, but lots of the specifics uh, of the program, the rumor component, the killing component, how you end up with things like Fred Hampton and Bunchy Carter and Mark Clark and blah, 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 goes on and on and on. The the fighting component, like it'll go into lots of, the, even stories like that LA Times piece, that was a part of it. They would have people on staff, John Patage talked about about that uh, when he was on with us both times how you have people that are on staff uh, for the FBI or CIA whatever it is one of these enforcement agencies and they can just write stuff in the newspaper oh yes Geronimo Pratt was a skilled serial assassin and all that they just make up whatever and get that in the New York Times or get that in the LA Times or whatever all this type of stuff like just <laughs> it is amazing uh, the amount of resources and time and energy and imagination uh, that if that's in, even though I didn't like the film, but I mean, it's, we just talked about it. The, the, the new film on Fred Hampton, Judas and the black Messiah, where they have a piece where the white people are sitting around bragging and joking about, Oh, we'll write up and make up some note to have, uh, the black Panthers in Chicago fighting with one of the local gangs. Like they're trying to squash all this conflict. We'll write something and make it up. We are calling them, you know, watermelon head coon and ha ha isn't it funny and ha ha and we can sound like the niggers talk and laughing about this like you have no or I think many of us Mr. Pratt said we had no idea we guessed we thought but we had no idea the scale of what racists were doing to us and that is still the case uh, so if you haven't learned about Pro, you will get some information from this book but there's I would highly encourage like take the time investigate you would probably be amazed uh, once you start. And that's, this is just like the information that they, that they have released that we know about. Like we probably don't even know the scale and the refinements that have taken place over the last, mm, what, 30, 40 years or so. Now they got drones and iPhones. Anywho, uh, we did our time for this week. We'll pick up next week uh, as we continue. Jack Olson, last man standing, the tragedy and triumph of Geronimo Pratt. Uh, We'll be here tomorrow for Neutralizing Workplace Racism, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. uh, And then the compensatory call-in this Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Wow. The Royal Tragedy. That was the hashtag we used, 2018, called it the Royal Tragedy. Meghan Markle has the entire world talking about racism. I was speaking to someone, a black person this morning, victim of racism, and I said, wow. The thing that everyone is talking about all over the world, the trial of George Floyd started this week. Lots of OJ Simpson's there too. high profile trial uh, that I think is televised. Uh, They're doing the jury selection, but George Floyd, the trial, Meghan Markle, the Royal family even having to come out today and say, we are very definitely not racist. It would seem racism is the problem all over the world. Doesn't matter if you are as dark as George Floyd or as light as Meghan Markle. The problem all over the world, the system of white supremacy. We'll chat it up this Saturday. 
much obliged for the folks tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy for Thursday evening. Uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We will need fully functioning brain computers to solve the problem. Uh, in addition to being sober, let's be buckled up. Uh, I would still encourage hunkered down. Uh, it is kind of wacky uh, out and about uh, with things that are going on. Uh, they're shooting young children with BB guns and such. Uh, if you have to go out, uh, be very alert uh, with regards to what is happening. Uh, if you see any folks being aggressive, hostile, loud, anything like that, like exit. Uh, we're not about taking risks, risks uh, in 2021. You should be thinking uh, these folks could be armed. If it's an individual, even if you're just seeing one person, there could be a whole cadre uh, with this person uh, and they could all be armed and looking to do a Chris Kyle or what have you on you thinking reminiscent about the good old days in the Gulf War, Vietnam or whatever it is. Uh, assume that they might be looking to do some damage get out of there. If you didn't leave your residence prepared for counter violence, uh, as Mr. Pratt was talking about, then I'm out of here. Call the phone, let the enforcement officers and SWAT people who are trained to deescalate as it were, let them come and do all that. Uh, that said, uh, we are sober. If you do go out, you're vigilant and buckled. If you are driving, you are not on the cell phone. Uh, we want to be as vigilant as we can about what's happening around us. And we are trying to minimize contact with the Mark Furmans of the known universe as best we can. Incidentally, they use the term uh, driving while black. Like that was the chapter of one of the titles in the book. Like I thought all those tacky phrasings, driving while black and breathing while black and walking while black and, you know, all blinking while black. I thought all that stuff was kind of recent uh, bird watch. Like this book is old, like driving while black is is that old they've been using that uh tacky cliche for that long like uh ponder on that for next week too uh that's it creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people no name calling victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person, it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. No name calling. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.